The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I think I'm holding this correctly, yes? Um, I, it gives me great, great pleasure to introduce Rita Gross, who um, some of you, I'm sure, know her through her uh, seminal work, Buddhism After Patriarchy, which it really has been um, accurately described as having changed the whole face of Buddhism because the um, groundbreaking work she did on women in, in early Buddhism and um, a neglected topic. But that's not what she's speaking on today. So Rita Gross has been, uh, she finished her scholarly work, at the, started her scholarly work in Buddhism about 1965. So she's been at it for a little while. Um, and became a uh, practicing Buddhist in about 1975. She is a longtime student of Khandro Rinpoche, um, who is her eminence, Khandro Rinpoche, one of the, I think, perhaps the only female Rinpoche um, on the planet from a long lineage of Rinpoches. And her father and mother did not have a son. So, which I think is the only reason she became a Rinpoche. Anyway, um, so her eminence, Khandro Rinpoche, um, Rita started studying with her in 1985, 95, I'm sorry, 1995, and uh, then became a Lopan, which is a teacher in that tradition in uh, 2005, so quite some time. Um, Rita uh, taught at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire for many years. She did her graduate work at the University of Chicago. Um, her topic today, which is Vajrayana for those of us who don't know anything about it, um, which is very exciting to me because it's, Buddhism is now, has now, uh, fortunately I think for all of us, the sectarianism that has uh, divided the different schools of Buddhism is um, slowly but surely dissolving. So I think uh, Gil has been instrumental in that as a longtime Zen practitioner. He's, you know, just kind of open. There's, there's, there's a wonderful acceptance and fluidity between Zen and um, insight meditation in this community. And Rita has done that and is doing that actively with Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, and really working hard. In fact, her new book, which I think she's got a few copies she's going to sell here. I actually got one, and you can get it endorsed if you want it. Religious Diversity, What's the Problem? Which is a fantastic, and, and this is my really quick nutshell <laughs> version of it, is that she's talking about the differences in religion and why that shouldn't be a problem. So instead of trying to make us all connected through, you know, we all share the same beliefs, she's actually pointing out how we're different, but also how that's not a problem. But it's, of course, a, a really detailed study. So I believe I have not left anything out that I wanted to say. Anyway, it's just an honor because, oh, I will say one thing, because I do academic work. I, I was trained in scholarship, too. So I used her work for many years before I had the chance to meet her. So it's always wonderful when you're a scholar and you're writing and publishing to finally meet the person who's influenced your thinking. And um, so it's you know, a special honor to me to have her here. <laughs> so join me in welcoming Rita Gross. 
Okay, well, thank you. The microphone's on now, I take it. Okay, thank you, Nona. Uh, it's very much a pleasure for me to be here. Um, I did some programs at the Sati Center a long time ago, like in the 90s, when it was probably in a different incarnation of some sort. And then I was here last year, so this is my second year to come back and teach. And I try to do this kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm an educator. I've been a professor all my life. I very much believe that Buddhists need to be educated about Buddhism. And whatever I can do to help educate Buddhists about Buddhism, I want to do. And for me, being educated about Buddhism means knowing something about the history of Buddhism and something about the varieties of Buddhism, so that just so that knowledge and information is a wonderful thing. And I think Nona would agree with that as another academic. It's just very hard for us to understand why people would be content to know less rather than to know more. It's always interesting to know more. Actually, whatever I do, if I'm going into an experience that looks like it might be, you know, a little unpleasant, a little uncomfortable, or something like that, uh, or something I don't agree with, I always say to myself, well, this is anthropological fieldwork. I can learn something from this experience. doesn't matter whether I like it or agree with it or want to take it up further later on. It's always possible to learn something and to become more enriched. So that's why I wanted to do this one-day program on Vajrayana Buddhism, uh, especially for people whom I'm assuming don't know a lot about Vajrayana Buddhism. Uh, it's not, I don't know of any other Theravada center that has had a Vajrayana practitioner come in and do this kind of a program. I've never done it before. This is the first time I'm doing this program, so we'll have to see how it goes. Now, to try to do a one-day orientation to Vajrayana Buddhism is very, very audacious because there, it's a very complicated form of Buddhism. There's a lot there. Now, I've been practicing Vajrayana Buddhism since 1980, and I've studied it a lot as well as practiced it a lot. So I've you know, a reasonable amount of knowledge. So I have selected things. I'm not going to aim, couldn't even begin to give you in terms of all the information available. Um, that much of an introduction in one day, but I've selected what I think is really, really important to know that should give you some kind of a some kind of a hit and some kind of knowledge that will be both accurate in scholarly terms and accurate from a practitioner's point of view. Uh, this is also part of the work I do to try, try to work to overcome Buddhist sectarianism. Obviously, for somebody who wrote this huge a book called Religious Diversity, What's the Problem? The subtitle is Buddhist Advice for Flourishing with Religious Diversity. The only other Buddhist who's written a big book like this on the religious diversity and how to work with religious diversity and how to evaluate other religions is the Dalai Lama. So I guess I'm trying to keep elevated company. Um, but I always feel, well, I must be on the right track if I end up saying and doing many of the same things the Dalai Lama says and does. And that does happen. So um, to do this one-day scholarly and practitioner's orientation to Vajrayana Buddhism, 
I think we need to start out uh, with some history. I um, actually am a great believer, especially when dealing with Buddhism, in getting the history straight, getting, and especially with Vajrayana Buddhism, to get the history straight. So um, Vajrayana is a later development in Buddhism historically. It is not something the historical Buddha taught. Um, Many Vajrayanas might try to tell you that, but that's just not historically accurate. And one of the things I'm constantly doing is um, correcting the historical mistakes my fellow Vajrayanists make because, you know, like every other religion, they have their own version of history. And usually the insider's version of history leaves a lot to be desired. Usually the insider, just think about American history and what's lacking in the insider American's version of American history. Uh, everybody likes to put, you know, put their best foot forward and basically say we're the best. And I have such, I just dislike Buddhist sectarianism so much. So I spend a lot of time at Lotus Garden, which is Khandu Rinpoche's center, Uh, At Lotus Garden, I teach every summer at their more academic program. Uh, There are two two Rinpoches, and two Rinpoches, Rinpoches is the highest teaching title in Vajrayana Buddhism, so there are two Rinpoches and me teaching there. I'm competing with them. Um, And uh, I've spent endless hours correcting Tibetan versions of Buddhist history for people who practice in Tibetan lineages. So I will not bother you with much of that today, uh, but I will give you a, some information about the historical development of Buddhism altogether so that we get to Vajrayana Buddhism. And the first thing I want to say is that in terms of history, all religions develop and change, and almost no religion will tell you that. Practically every religion has its insider's pious version of the founder taught this and nothing has ever changed since then and nothing ever can change because it's perfect. And if you think about change uh, and you think about wanting to change things, you're disloyal. Uh, I mean, it's very strong. In, that point of view is very strong in Christianity. It's pretty strong in Islam. Um, You know, it's just strong in all religions. And why Buddhists resist that there is historical change is beyond me, given that impermanence is one of our primary teachings. We teach impermanence, all things change, but Dharma never changes. (laughs) And, you know, so many Buddhists seem to somehow believe that, that everything changes, but not Dharma. And... um, You know, I've run into this attitude over and over. So uh, to start at the beginning, if we're going to do history, uh, if you've taken a college course on Buddhism, they probably taught you that the Buddha, the historical Buddha, and I very strongly believe that Buddhism starts with a historical human being who had a normal human body, like the rest of us, and was born and grew up and died and wasn't a magical emanation from some other realm, but was a a real human being like us. That to me is a very important part of Buddhist belief. 
Uh, they would have told you in that college history course uh, that the dates of the historical Buddha are 563 to 483 BC. That's what they would have told you. Uh, recently, there's been more scholarship that has been done. The dates of the historical Buddha are impossible to determine for sure, but scholarship has been done recently that says we should probably move that forward about 100 years. And I agree with that scholarship. And I'm not going to go into the reasons why. I think that's a better hypothesis. The old hypothesis comes from the Sri Lankan chronicles, and they had certain things they were trying to maintain that don't tie in with records we have of Indian history. So I would say we can date the historical Buddha from 460 to 380 B.C., and I don't know whether Nona agrees with me or not, but we're not going to argue about it. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so the closest thing we have, one of the things that's very frustrating about really studying Buddhism in depth is that it's very, very hard to locate definitively exactly and only what the historical Buddha taught. Because uh, the, what we have is the closest thing to his teachings are preserved in the Pali texts, in the Nikayas, in the four major Nikayas, probably not. The, the Nikayas are uh, collections of suttas that are all attributed to the Buddha. And the Buddha probably taught the core teachings that are in them. I don't see any reason to dispute that too much. In any case, those have become the core teachings of Buddhism. And, you know, what are those core teachings? At least we would have to say uh, the four truths, interdependence, the three marks of impermanence, dukkha or suffering, and egolessness. If you really, really understand those sets of teachings, you've got, you've got a deep insight into what Buddhism is about. But it takes, I'll be talking about this tomorrow in my Dharma talk. I'm going to talk tomorrow about how to internalize Buddhist teachings. But, you know, you can read them very quickly and, you know, you can memorize them very quickly. It takes a long time and it takes a lot of internal work. It takes a lot of introspection to really understand what those teachings mean and how they apply to one's life. Four truths, three marks, interdependence. Interdependence, by the way, is the same thing as emptiness, but we're not going to go into that here. So at least the Buddha taught that. And those are the teachings that are the core teachings of Theravada Buddhism today, and I would say also the core teachings of all forms of Buddhism. Though other forms of Buddhism have developed additional teachings. I have made people at Lotus Garden very, very upset and unhappy when I said, well, of course the historical Buddha didn't teach Mahayana, the second set of teachings, uh, the second version of, you know, uh, if you have Theravada teachings, then we have Mahayana teachings, and then we have Vajrayana teachings. The historical Buddha clearly did, in my view, and I think all reputable scholars would agree with me, the historical Buddha did not teach Mahayana, and he did not teach Vajrayana. These sets of teachings developed later 
as we would say in, in Buddhist teachings on interdependence, these teachings developed later due to historical causes and conditions. We can explain why they developed. We can begin to start understanding why they developed. The fact that they developed later neither makes them true nor untrue. You know, people always judge. Well, if it's later, um, it, <laughs> I'll tell you a little story about Lotus Garden. After my second year of teaching history there, when I basically taught the historical Buddha, Buddha didn't teach Mahayana, and I started teaching where Mahayana teachings came from. And um, after I left, one of the people who had been in residence whose marriage was falling apart, but he was uncomfortable and he used this excuse for leaving in the middle of the night one night, which is very much disapproved of. Just got in his car and started driving home. And he said, well, he had learned in the history course that Buddhism was no, really no truer than Christianity. He had been misled to think Christianity was true and then he became a Buddhist and he had been taught that the historical Buddha taught Mahayana Buddhism, and now he had been taught that that wasn't true either. So Buddhism wasn't true either. So he was bye-bye. That's how people think. So I got a letter, um, clearly not from Rinpoche directly, but clearly at her command, asking what could I possibly have taught that would cast such doubt in the mind of a senior student that he would decide he didn't need to practice anymore. And they had heard, see, because none of them had bothered to come to the talks. They had heard that I had taught that the Prajnaparamita, uh, the teachings on transcendent wisdom, which are an important set of Mahayana teachings, that the Prajnaparamita had not been taught by the historical Buddha, but had been made up later. Because, see, if it's not taught by the historical Buddha, it was made up later. And that was how people think. So I had to write back. <laughs> and this was a real problem for years. People were just so... I had one of the other senior teachers denounce me for teaching this kind of heresy. I had done enough work with Buddhism after patriarchy. Why didn't I just... Uh, why was I continuing to do this kind of upsetting work? So I had to write a letter back saying, um, you know, uh, scholars of Buddhism, Buddhist history have known for well over a hundred years that the Mahayana teachings are later. The Mahayana teachings emerged about the earliest is about the first century B.C. So that's, you know... Oh, 300 years after the historical Buddha, those Mahayana teachings started to emerge. No, and the Vajrayana teachings didn't emerge until much later than that. So why did, or what was going on in the emergence of Mahayana teachings? I think this is something uh, worth thinking about or knowing a little about. Um... There are unique Mahayana Buddhist teachings, but they are not teachings on emptiness and compassion. Teachings on emptiness and compassion were, in my view, were taught by the historical Buddha. So some Theravadins don't want to study emptiness because that's a Mahayana teaching. 
they think it's a Mahayana teaching. Well, that's, that's just not... Nona and I went through the Pali Suttas the other day in which the Buddha talks about emptiness. Now, in Pali texts, they didn't use the word emptiness very often. They tended to use the adjective empty. But that's an irrelevant difference. That doesn't make any difference. So it's not these teachings on emptiness and compassion that are unique to Mahayana. They run like the golden thread that runs through all of Buddhism in my view. But many Mahayanists will tell you, oh, no, no, we Mahayanists invented teachings on emptiness. We Mahayanists invented teachings on compassion. Uh, it wasn't. Those, those were not. Those weren't there in early Buddhism. And I've, I've argued actually with faculty members at Naropa University about that. So it runs pretty thick in certain Mahayana circles. You can see how much I've invested in getting past Buddhist sectarianism. What we don't find in earlier texts, and this is a specifically Mahayana kind of, or not specifically Mahayana, but more more of a focus in Mahayana, what you don't find in the early texts is the notion that what one should do as a practitioner is take the bodhisattva vow, which means one vows to be reborn as a, in, in ordinary existence, as a samsaric being, as an unenlightened being, until all beings can attain enlightenment. That's the bodhisattva vow. The bodhisattva vow is to uh, rest, is to remain in samsara uh, until one attains complete, perfect enlightenment for the sake and welfare of all beings. Now, what does complete, perfect enlightenment mean? Samyaksambuddha, complete, perfect enlightenment means that you can establish Buddhism as a religion in a universe in which no one knows about it. And that's what you should work for, that you shouldn't just be content to become enlightened and not be reborn. That's not an elevated enough goal. The elevated goal is that you should work for complete, perfect Buddhahood. Now, in early Buddhism, I think you all know this, at least you should know this. In early Buddhism, um, the Buddha, what made the Buddha unique is that he did not have a teacher. He discovered Dharma, the four truths, and interdependence without a teacher. And he's the only, this is, this is pretty much the Buddhist, early Buddhist belief anyway, he's the only person who could do that. That's what made him unique. So uh, early, the followers of Buddha can't become Buddhas, but they do become arhats or arahants, which means people who have individual liberation, people who, are, who have the same experience of awakening and are not going to be reborn in a... Well, I always put it, not going to be reborn as unenlightened, confused beings. Maybe they're going to be reborn somewhere. Who knows that? But they're not going to be reborn as confused, um, unenlightened beings. What happens to them after they die is one of the questions that there is no answer for. There is absolutely no answer to the question of what happens to an enlightened being after they die. 
There's absolutely no, cannot be answered. Any more than one can describe in verbal concepts what egolessness is, what the lack of a permanent enduring self is, any more than one can describe what emptiness, and emptiness is simply also the lack of any inherent existence. It's not different from egolessness. So the Buddha did not teach people to take the bodhisattva vow. At least I can't find a text in which he says, this is what you should do. Can you, Nona? No. Okay. It developed fairly early in Buddhism, and it's found as an option in Theravada Buddhism, but it's not the common option in forms of Theravada Buddhism. So why did this develop? This is something I've puzzled and puzzled and puzzled about. Why did the idea develop that becoming enlightened wasn't good enough? That that was inadequate? Because it's a very strong idea in segments of Mahayana Buddhism. That it isn't adequate. And furthermore, that you can't become enlightened under current conditions. Now, there developed fairly early in Buddhism a whole notion that's called decline of the Dharma. So it's been pretty common in many sects of Buddhism to believe that enlightenment is no longer possible under current conditions. But um, in Buddhism, when did this happen? Mm. Well, let's say uh, in the late B.C. centuries at the very earliest the notion developed that it wasn't good enough to become enlightened and also that you couldn't become enlightened anymore. And going along with that, this very definitely developed. You can see it in the texts, uh, in the, uh, not in the Nikayas, but in the Abhidharma texts. There developed a notion that um, the arhats were not what they were cracked up to be that they were not as perfect as they had been cracked up to be, that they were inadequate. And furthermore, that there were no arhats today. Maybe there had been arhats in the past, but there are no longer arhats today. Nobody's getting enlightened today. And there's a whole, there's a lot of controversies in early Buddhism, but there's a whole list of proofs that there are no arhats today. What are the proofs that there are no arhats, no fully awakened beings today? People started to believe that the Buddha was omniscient, and they defined omniscience in what I think is a very stupid way to define omniscience, that we wouldn't have to learn the French language, <clears throat> or you wouldn't have to, you would, uh, as I've heard of some students in some Theravada Buddhist countries saying, they wanted to become enlightened because then they would be omniscient, which would mean they wouldn't have to study for their university exams. But that's what people were thinking of omniscience as in, you know, in um, pre-Mahayana Buddhism uh, in India. Um, and, you know, what is, a, what is the omniscience of a Buddha? The omniscience of a Buddha is perfectly understanding interdependence in the Four Noble Truths, not being caught anymore by the confusions that bind us normal people. That's what, interdep what omniscience has to mean. But in this period, in this period of all of the anti-arhat rhetoric, 
what they said was, well, these people who claim to be arhats, when they go into a town they don't know, they have to ask directions. If they were, um, if they were enlightened and omniscient, they wouldn't have to ask directions. Um, they would, um, they, and they have to ask people's names. They don't know the names of people they haven't met. Well, if they were omniscient, they would know their names. And um, so I don't know if you ran into this when you were at Naropa Nona, but I've heard of it as the Naropa Koan, which is, does the omniscient Buddha need directions to the Denver airport? (laughs) And the answer is yes. The omniscient Buddha does need directions to the Denver airport. Now, more than that, what people started to say is that Buddhas can perform miracles. Enlightened beings can perform miracles. And no one's performing miracles today, therefore no one's enlightened today. This is my case against all of the fascination with magic and superstition that Buddhists love to get into. All of the talk about extrasensory perception, all of the talk about knowing one's previous births or knowing where someone has been reborn, um, you know, all of that talk about leaving stone, leaving footprints in stone, handprints in stone, uh, which is absolutely, I mean, Buddhist lore is absolutely replundant with miracle stories. It's, it's just millions and miracles of miracle stories in Buddhist lore. And um, when I call it miracle-mongering, most of my colleagues, in most forms of Buddhism, in fact, most of my colleagues become very impatient with me because I'm, I'm you know, cutting out something that is important to them and something that they think proves Buddhism. My students at the university used to tell me, when I was teaching Intro to World Religions, for example, they would tell me, well, you can tell that Christianity is the true religion. Jesus could perform miracles. And I would shake my head and say, look, that doesn't prove anything. Miracle stories are a dime a dozen, and every religion has them. So it doesn't prove anything. But I have argued with, you know, senior Buddhist practitioners about no, no, and one, a couple of weeks ago, someone tried to prove to me that Jesus had discovered rainbow body, and that's what his resurrection meant. And this person was adamant. And I had to, well, surely you believe in rainbow body. This Rainbow body is a Tibetan belief that a very advanced practitioner, when they die, they ask to be put in an enclosure by themselves, left undisturbed for seven days. And seven days later, you open the room, you come back, open the room, and all that's left is fingernails, toenails, and hair of the head. So I cannot emphasize to you enough about how well and alive miracle stories are in Buddhism. The suttas, there's actually a lot of miracle stories in the suttas, and we all have to figure out what to do with them. I, I, for the life of me, can't figure out what they ever do for us. But uh, the belief in miracles certainly led to this, certainly had a large part in this you know, major schism in Buddhism, which haunts Buddhism to the present day, that Theravadans disrespect Mahayanists, Mahayanists think they're superior to Theravadans, and people call each other names. 
And everybody hosts their flag and says, you know, we're the best, which to me is just a form of ego. To say, we're the best, my religion, my form of Buddhism is best, is better than yours. Haven't you ever had any teachings on egolessness? And there is no permanent abiding entity there? I see the hand, just let me finish. Um, You know, haven't you ever, how can you study teachings on egolessness and get some grasp of the fact that there is no inherent, uncaused, permanent abiding entity in anything and also be so attached to your miracle stories. So uh, that's, I think, how Mahayana first began to develop. Though, as a full-blown separate sect within Buddhism, in my view, Mahayana doesn't really emerge until the 4th century AD. Before that, there were tendencies and theories, and people were arguing with each other. But people were also... Ancient India, Buddhism was not sectarian at all. I think this is very important. Actually, throughout the history of Indian Buddhism, Buddhism was not sectarian at all. It's only outside of India that Buddhism became so sectarian. As Mahayana Buddhism did not get transmitted into Southeast Asia, so there, you know, Ra-Ra, Theravada. And Theravada forms of Buddhism were not successful in East Asia or in Tibet. Only Mahayana Buddhisms are found in China, Japan, Korea, Tibet. But in India, uh, Buddhists were not sectarian. The, they, they had different texts, they had different teaching lineages, and like here in a university department, you don't have a good university department of philosophy that is only composed of one school of philosophy. A good department of philosophy will have representatives of all different schools of philosophy. That's the way the great Buddhist universities in India were. Uh, the libraries, the manuscript collections were huge, everything was there. Everything was studied and taught. People debated nonstop. Uh, and it was, you know, it was a, a place of incredible intellectual ferment and growth and change. So yes, you had Mahayana tendencies. You even had Vajrayana tendencies. You had people who rejected Mahayana and Vajrayana. But it wasn't like they were always at each other's throats the way it can be here. So I think the person more than anyone who made uh, Mahayana Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, was a Sangha whose dates are in the 4th century AD. So for a good 700 years in India, we just didn't have Theravada versus Mahayana. We had texts, we had Mahayana texts for sure. People were studying those texts. Um, They were discussing with each other. But did monks who regarded themselves as Mahayanist in orientation lived in the same monasteries as monks who regarded themselves in what today we would call Theravada in orientation. And, you know, it was like, well, what's the problem with that? They followed the same rules of discipline. They didn't have to agree on the same ideology. Why do we always have to agree on the same ideology? Why is that such an important Why is that such an important... That's the whole point of this book, that we we do not have to agree on the same ideology to live agreeably with each other and work in an agreeable fashion. 
So um, I want to get in this historical overview, I want to get to the emergence of Vajrayana. Um, Mahayana, by the way, means the great vehicle or the large vehicle. Um, Vajrayana means the indestructible vehicle. And Vajrayana considers itself to be an element within Mahayana. It does not consider itself to be independent from Mahayana. You can't practice Vajrayana Buddhism without also being a Mahayanist. It's impossible. <clears throat> now, when did Vajrayana Buddhism emerge? Um, the dates are not clear to me. It didn't become dominant or prominent in Indian Buddhism until maybe the 6th or 7th century AD, well after Mahayana was well in place. And um, the forms of Vajrayana Buddhism show a lot of Hindu influence. Hinduism and Buddhism, just like all the forms of Buddhism interacted in India, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism interacted in India as well. And Hinduism, uh, Hinduism at one point was really, um, Buddhism was much more popular and much more dominant. But then Hinduism had a resurgence, had a renaissance. And Hinduism developed a lot of forms that the Buddhists also borrowed from. So a lot of what we find in Vajrayana Buddhism would be impossible to understand without Hindu influence. It just wouldn't be. Now, a lot of Vajrayanists don't like to admit that, but what's new? <laughs> oh, they don't like to admit those things. So that gets us up. We've got Mahayana in the scene. We've got Vajrayana in the scene. For a Vajrayana practitioner, the slogan is for a Vajrayana practitioner that you are practicing, you have taken the bodhisattva vow, so you are trying to become enlightened for the sake of all sentient beings, so that you will become fully enlightened and not have a, a lesser version of enlightenment, but the, the full picture, so that you will eventually, and this is going to be so far in the future that we might as well not even try to count the zeros, uh, Mahayana is a very, very long path. It takes endless eons to accomplish the bodhisattva path to full enlightenment. Just as it became, if you study the Jatakas, the stories of the Buddha's former lives or all of that, it took endless eons for Siddhartha to become Siddhartha. Those stories are all there about how long it took him. And, you know, you can't even calculate uh, the zeros very easily. That's how long it will take us but according to Mahayana, that should be our goal, that we're willing to put in all that time. Well, you know, that gets to be a little tired after a while. All you have to look forward to is perpetual rebirth in confusion. And you're just doing that. And you might, you know, get a little bit better and you might be able to guarantee that you won't be reborn in the lower realms. You won't be reborn in the hell realms, the hungry ghost realm, the animal realms. But beyond that, it's hard to have a lot of certainty about how things are going to play out. Though I'm always amazed that people have such a strong belief in rebirth. They're always very confident that they're going to be like reborn in their own families. They're going to be just like we are now. We'll be reborn just like we are now in our next lives. We won't be 
any problems about that? So Vajrayana is the goal or the purpose of Vajrayana practice is to be a short path that will enable one to accomplish Mahayana in a single lifetime. And a lot of Vajrayana practitioners haven't properly been taught that, but that is the point, that this is a path. These practices will enable one to become enlightened in a single lifetime. And many, for example, Tibetans, Tibetan Buddhism is all, is a lot of it is Vajrayana Buddhism. Uh, many Tibetans do very strongly believe that there have been many fully enlightened beings in the past and even in the present uh, who can be called Buddhas. And, you know, you never say it about yourself. You can say it about your teacher, but you never say it about yourself. It would be extremely arrogant to claim that one had accomplished the Vajrayana path. But that is, you know, that is the attraction of Vajrayana Buddhism to be a short path, an effective path to more quickly cut through confusion and attain enlightenment. So it's now 9.45, that's the historical overview. And the rest of the morning I want to spend talking about what is this Vajrayana path that will speed up the process of becoming enlightened. And much of the advice on the Vajrayana path is good for any practitioner. Uh, It's quite good advice in terms of practice. Uh, But that's where I want to go next. So I know there were a few questions about this history. Nona might want to add something. Does Nona want to add anything? Well, I'd like to hear. Just put it up to your mouth. There. Um, I certainly want to hear the questions because that might address what I was going to add. Um, because as a in Theravada, we we believe, and then perhaps you didn't say this, but this is what you understand too, so let me know, that um, when our hearts die, that because they've attained Nibbana, they won't be reborn because Nibbana is the complete yeah. um, I'm, elimination. I'm careful. I'm careful in how I put it. They certainly are not reborn in any samsaric state. Right, what I'm, but I what I'm saying is in, in Theravada, don't, we don't, ter- we don't would, believe they'll be reborn yeah, see, at all. And I, would say, I would say in response that that's um, actually that's more definite. That's more asserting a position than I want to go to. I want to stay with no position, very much at the level of no position, no assertions. Because so, okay, the, let me add something of this too, Rita, and then I'm going to pass on the questions. But the, the reason, and I think this is important to, to clarify, is that in Theravada view, and people can certainly correct me, please, if you understand differently, uh, Nibbana is the total extinction. There is nothing that could be reborn. So this is, in our view, the, yeah. this is emptiness, complete yeah, and total yeah, emptiness, yeah. nothing to be reborn, right. no place to be born right, from. Right. And Nibbana, since Nibbana can't be defined, that we don't talk about it yeah. per se. Yeah, well, I agree with that. I think it's always very important to avoid any position whatsoever. Um, so you had questions earlier on. Thanks. I wanted to go back to the 
uh, early comment that you made that Mahayanists are concerned that the historical Buddha didn't teach Mahayana teachings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, to me, that seems obvious in terms of the historical Buddha, but I have read um, some scholarly work that says that going on at the time of the emergence of the Bodhisattva ideal, there was a lot of magical thinking about people having revelations that oh, came from Buddhas in other realms. Right, and so what they're right. offering is teachings of the Buddha, but not of the historical yeah, Buddha. Right. I wonder if you could address yeah, that. Yeah, I, I can address that, because Buddhists for a long time, and I think this is a very nice feature of Buddhism, for a very long time we've had a category of uh, newly if you want to use the word revealed, I'm going to put it in quotation marks, new texts that are um, reliable. We've had that category for a long time. That there are new texts that are reliable. Um, why are they reliable? Because they, they are come from a mind that has complete insight, complete understanding. And um, that's what we could say. Yes, in the beginnings of, the historical beginnings of Mahayana Buddhism, people definitely thought that, that what they were coming up with, oh, let me put it this way, in a new period of Buddhism, with a new development of Buddhism, people are going to say, if the Buddha were alive today, this is what he'd be teaching. And I say that about my work on Buddhism and gender. Western teachers say that too. <laughs> if the Buddha were alive today, he would not be teaching sexism and patriarchy. But there's a lot of pet sexism and patriarchy in Buddhism. So any, any person who, who has done a lot of practice and has a lot of insight and innovates in some ways in the tradition is going to say, this is surely what the Buddha would teach if he were alive today. And that's just the way religions are. The, the insiders don't like to admit it, but that's the way religions are. Now, the Tibetans, for example, are very, um, I think they're very smart. And they say, of course, there are new teachings that are reliable, given even today. Because teachings have to be kept up to date. Circumstances change. And so... What keeps teachings up to date is the insightful wisdom of highly accomplished practitioners who in their, you know, in their deep introspection come up with ways of saying things that are very reliable, very helpful, and very accurate. And, you know, uh, not they don't contradict what the historical Buddha said, but they very much amplify it. And I think if only more religions had that category in Tibetan is called terma, T-E-R-M-A. I think if only all religions had that category. Now, most religions have certain ways, like the Catholic doctrine of ex cathedra, could function that way. But usually, the people who are in power are so conservative and so backward-looking that the Pope's not going to get an ex-cathedral revelation that it's time to start ordaining women. You know, they just don't because they're so conservative. But I think that's a very, very useful recognition that religious traditions are not static. What worked 2,000 years ago isn't going to work today. 
It's even very hard to understand. Language, among other things, changes. The polytexts are not easy to read, right? They're not easy to read. Does that answer the question? I think it addresses um, why Mahayanas would believe that what they were teaching was completely in line with what the historical yeah. Buddha well, would have taught, and they could have then switched over easily to believing that the actual historical Buddha taught that. Well, I, what I don't the, know that you've addressed completely the, the issue of revelation and um, the sense that it was really accepted that people would go into deep samadhi and have visions of seeing Buddhas in other realms and that they could hear Dharma talks from them. And yeah, that's very them. commonly asserted yeah. in Mahayana texts that uh, a Sangha went to uh, Tushita heaven and heard direct teachings directly from Maitreya, the Buddha of the next world age. And I just listened to the, you know, those are all stories. I love stories. I love stories. Stories are great. You don't have to determine whether a story is true or false. Stories are not meant to be historically true or false. They're meant to be stories and to explain things. Now, what many Mahayanas say in addition, and this is what a lot of people who practice in the Tibetan Vajrayana tradition believe, is that the historical Buddha did teach Prajnaparamita. He taught it on Rajgriha, which is a place in India where the Buddha did a lot of teaching, the historical Buddha did. And there's a very short text, which Mahayanas use all the time, called the Heart Sutra. Many of you must have heard it. Uh, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, etc., etc. Very enigmatic text. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness is... Prajnaparamita teachings are very, very enigmatic. They're very Zen-like. In fact, that's where Zen comes from. Um, that the historical Buddha took a bunch of disciples to Rajgriha where he t gave the text that we call the Heart Sutra. He gave that text. But this is how the prejudice is developed. Uh, the arhats, who thought they were completely enlightened, couldn't understand what the Buddha was saying. They thought, this is nonsense. And so they left. And after that, the Buddha said, um, hmm, I guess my... My uh, disciples aren't as advanced as I thought they were. They're not ready for these teachings yet. I will have to hide them for 400 years. So he hid the, the Prajnaparamita texts. And um, lo and behold, about 400 years later, Nagarjuna came along and went to the realm. They were hidden among the Nagas. So Nagarjuna came along and went to the realm of the Nagas and brought these texts back. And many Mahayanists believe that literally. When I challenged that at Lotus Garden, that was, that was really, really a problem. Then I had to finally bring in the Dalai Lama to say, well, if you've ever been to Rajgriya, I've been to Rajgriya. If you've ever been to Rajgriya, you know it's a fairly small space. And there's no place where all the millions of people who are supposed to have stood there could possibly have stood. So we have to understand that story at a deeper level. Now, for most, you know, for most religions, accurate empirical modern history is deeply troubling. 
you know, I mean, you say, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. You'll be told you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. You have to believe Jesus rose from the dead to be a Christian, just like you have to believe in rebirth to be a Buddhist, etc. Their religions have these stories that they take literally, that they just, the ground comes out from underneath when you stop taking that story literally. And so, you know, um, the Dalai Lama has now written a new book. and The Dalai Lama has done a lot to bring Tibetans up to speed in the present day because, you know, the Tibetans came out of Tibet in 1959 with an 18th century worldview. Most of them still believed the earth was flat. They literally still believed the earth was flat. And when they were told that it was round... Their basic reaction was, no, that's just another crazy Western idea. Look at the earth, it's flat. It's, I mean, how could, why would you think it's round? And, you know, those stories are still told about Tibetan teachers who are still alive, who had to make that transition, which was, you know, a big shock. A big shock to their worldview. And they've also, I mean, they've had to come to terms with, you know, real Buddhist history that no, the historical Buddha taught neither Mahayana nor Vajrayana. And I've been at Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist centers teaching and someone's asked the question, well, when did Vajrayana Buddhism start? And I say, we don't really know. And somebody puts up their hand and says, oh, oh, no, the historical Buddha taught these to King Indrabhuti. <laughs> You know, I say, no, no, that's just, a, that's a story. And it's like such a crushing thing. So I think it's very possible to, you know, to enjoy the wide range of teachings through a big historical period. And there's, you know, I, my, one of my points is that people are not totally stupid. Any religious teaching that has served large numbers of people well for many centuries must have some merit. There must be something in it that isn't stupid. And maybe something we could learn from, though we may not necessarily want to adopt it. And likewise, just because your religious teaching has served your group well for many hundreds of years, don't assume it's going to work for everybody. That's just as backwards. Can you... Yep. So you just touched on. No, um, no, you just touched on the, the question that I that came to my mind. Most or or many senior Dharma teachers today don't um, believe in the literal uh, idea of rebirth. And so, if the Buddha were teaching today, do you think that he would be teaching rebirth literally? I don't know what the Buddha would be teaching about that if he were teaching today. As I said in answering Nona's question, uh, my own way I go, I think that the fundamental, one of the fundamental things Buddhism is about is that we do not have conceptual certainty. We do not have verbal certainty. The mind of only don't know which is one of the famous Korean Zen teachers has put it. And also the teachings that are very strong in the Nikayas that um, I think one of the first 
quotations I ever read from Joseph Goldstein was many, many years ago, quoting one of his teachers saying that what's most damaging to people's progress on the path? Their opinions. People are so opinionated. And people are extremely opinionated about the question of birth and rebirth. And I don't take a position. And so I, for myself, I have no idea what the Buddha would teach today. But I think the Buddha would always be teaching, don't cherish your own opinions. Don't cherish your own views. Uh, nirvana is not a matter of correct verbal view. So does that mean that one can understand Vajrayana teachings um, without a literal understanding of rebirth? Well, the Dalai Lama says it's stupid not to believe in rebirth because one life isn't long enough to make very much progress on the path. Um, But, you know, that's the Dalai Lama's understanding. And, you know, I've... I'm a skeptical modern Westerner, and I don't assume that my modern skeptical Western view is going to last forever either. What's, we do, there are, I think it's very, very wise not to have opinions about everything that we don't need opinions about. Certainly, you know, if Buddhism didn't help me in my present life, why would I be Buddhist? That, to me, is the acid test. If it doesn't help me in my present life, why would I think it's going to help me five lives from now? That doesn't make any sense to me. For me, the proof of Buddhism is that it works, it's sensible, uh, it doesn't have stupid non-empirical claims that are essential. Um, And that to me is important. And, um, you know, it, it... People, people become compassionate and wise when they practice Buddhist disciplines. People become kinder human beings if we practice Buddhist disciplines. If we really, that to me is unfailing. And as insofar as a, I'm a, you know, as I'm so far as I'm a Buddhist teacher, that's what I would teach. There's a the Buddha actually taught about those things in I forgot the name of it but it's Sutta 95 in the Middle Lent discourses where the Buddha, the Brahmins ask him that this is the way it is and he, he questions them but he says how to preserve the truth you don't come out to say this is the way it is say this is what I believe or this is my conviction and, and to be honest about that and there's also another story with with um, Ananda, where he said, like, you're the greatest Buddha of all. And he says, you've, you've and, seen all of them all? Yeah, and Ananda, you know, then Buddha says, you haven't seen them all, so you don't know. Yeah, so the thing is, that's, that's how in you, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Yeah, that's how, that's how you preserve the truth. I mean, a well, lot of people, a lot, I think the biggest mistake in... Well, the, biggest, the, Kala, the Kalama Sutta is very much on that topic as well. And a lot of, you know, more traditional teachers don't like the Kalama Sutta because it gives people too much open-endedness. But it's also the other... And if there's a restriction in it, when it tells you how to look at things, it looks look at how well they work. Essentially, yeah. is what it says. You don't but, don't take them on opinion, but you have to analyze how well they work. 
But I think the, where people get hung up is they take their opinions to be the truth. They take their opinions to be the truth. And just that, say, this is my opinion. The, yeah, that people do not distinguish between my opinion and the truth, which right. I think if you've heard anything I'm saying, I'm saying don't make that mistake. Yeah, but if you say, I believe in rebirth, I don't know, but I believe in it, or I take it as worthing hypotheses, that's, and you're being honest about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my basic position is I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I think it's very un-Buddhist. I don't think it's good Buddhism to, to be adamantly denying the possibility of rebirth. I don't think that's good Buddhism because that's too opinionated. There's a interesting to say you have to believe in rebirth to be a Buddhist, I also think that's too opinionated. Yeah. So this, this, you know, these four things, the four fetters that bind us if we're unduly, you know, the second noble truth is very clear. What is the cause of suffering? It is attachment. It is clinging. In a way, certainty. What are the four things we are most likely to get bound up by, to cling to, and therefore to end up suffering because we put so much freight on them? First of all, too much concern with sense pleasures, with our own comfort, Second, too much concern that we have to do the right rituals. That doing, doing, you know, even meditating correctly, even following the monastic precepts, that by doing the right thing, we'll be okay. Thirdly, our beliefs and opinions. Our, you know, this opinion is not just an opinion. And fourth, of course, is clinging to the notion that I'm here, I'm me. And, you know, if you think about egolessness at all, it usually turns into the uh, that I'm the center of the world. This is what's most important. That's what it amounts to. So it's very hard to develop kindness while one is egocentric. Um, so where was I? I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> Anything else? So this is how Buddhism, in a bird's eye view, but it's, I think I would say it's an accurate bird's eye view of how Buddhism got to be so complicated and so sectarian. And um, it, took me, it took me a hell of a lot longer than um, an hour to figure it out. <laughs> it took me a hell of a lot longer, much, much more reading, um, you know, much, much more... But part of what the initial discomfort, the initial discomfort that I had that made me, that was an itch, that I had to go further with it, the initial discomfort was the Mahayana claim that their teachings were superior because Mahayanists taught emptiness and the Pali Suttas were inadequate. The Pali Suttas are not an adequate set of teachings. And I've heard many terrible things said about the Pali teachings and earlier Buddhism and what's inadequate about it. And I just, this didn't make any sense to me that the historical Buddha who founded the religion didn't, didn't you know, that it took, it needed till a Sangha came along before we got Buddhism straight. It waited till ex teacher came along before we got Buddhism straight. That's what didn't make sense to me. And so that's the itch I went at. I spent 
After a few years, I was originally a student of Trungpa Rinpoche, and Trungpa Rinpoche taught this stuff in a much more adequate fashion. But after I'd been going to Lotus Garden for a few years, I just, um, especially when my teacher told me that her teachers once told her not to read the Pali texts, which to me was very, very shocking. And I've never had a chance to ask her, well, why did they tell you that? Because she now reads the Pali texts and often teaches them. But I know no other Vajrayana teacher who teaches them as much as she does. Um, but I, I, spent one, I spent a winter reading retreat going through Tinisaro, Tan Jeff's volumes of uh, the Pali suttas. And then for two years, I thought we were going to, and I was teaching history of Buddhism at Lotus Garden, I thought we'd be into Mahayana in a year, no problem. I held those Lotus Garden students for two or three years reading Pali suttas. And what hung them up so much was that the historical Buddha literally had to have taught the Mahayana Suttas. Because the Mahayana Sutras are just like the Pali Suttas. They all start out with a prologue that says, once the Blessed One was dwelling here, and these people were with him, and this is what he taught. That's how they start. So you can understand people who don't have a lot of historical consciousness and don't make a lot of the difference between history and story, their attitude would be, well, these people wouldn't be lying about this. It must have been the historical Buddha who was there, and this is what he taught. Because that's how they all are. They're very long discourses put into the mouth of the historical Buddha. And, it, you know, it was very troubling to these people. It took them a couple of years before they could begin to listen to how it could possibly be that the Mahayana Sutras could be valuable and yet not have been taught by the historical Buddha himself. And it was finally a statement in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta that I got them to um, come around. I got them to come around by saying, look, none of you believe in the flat earth, right? But you do this ritual every day in which you visualize as if it's a flat earth. You have no trouble with that. You know that what the, rich, what the liturgy is saying is not to be taken literally. You know that, right? Well, they couldn't, they had to admit that because none of them believed in a flat earth. They just didn't. But how could, they couldn't wrap their minds around that prologue in Mahayana Sutras wasn't history, it was a story. There's a statement in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta very near the end of the Buddha's life where he talks about what to do in the future. He says, in the future, people will bring texts or statements that they've heard that they, they say, I heard that this is what the Buddha said. What should you do with those statements? And the Buddha says, what you should do with those statements that are attributed to me is don't accept them and don't reject them. See why I like this no position. Don't accept them. Don't reject them. Study them. And if they accord with the Dhamma and the Vinaya, with the teachings I've taught and with the rules of conduct I've given, if they accord with the Dhamma and the Vinaya, they can be regarded as the word of the Buddha even if only one person think, says this is what I heard from the Buddha. 
So even in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, there's a, quite a wide license to take later texts seriously. And I, I, uh, I love to teach that sutta. Any other questions before we go into an overview of Vajrayana path? So Vajrayana path, a way to attain enlightenment in a single lifetime or to accomplish the Mahayana, complete perfect enlightenment, to become Buddha. And we say this, to become Buddha in a single lifetime. We do say this. I think we're, you know, we, we are not too shy about claiming that it is possible to become truly enlightened these days. Now, not too many Vajrayana teachers will say that really forcefully and openly, but it is said. So uh, the way I'm going to present the path of Vajrayana Buddhist practice is that there are two major types of discipline. And the first of them I'm going to talk about this morning. This afternoon I'll talk about the second. The first major type of discipline are form practices. Form practices have a lot of forms. They have a lot of rituals. They have a lot of liturgies. They have a lot of do this, do it this way. A lot of very specific and in many ways very time-consuming and potentially irritating things that one needs to do. So I will, I will uh, go through those. That kind of form practice, so I'll give you the terms so that I may use these terms later on. I don't want you to be confused. Those kinds of practices are called utpati practices, U-T-P-A-T-T-I. And I use Sanskrit rather than Tibetan. I'm not going to bother you with Tibetan. That's even worse. Nona can follow Sanskrit. U-T-P-A-T-T-I. But form teachings that have practices that have a lot of form, that have a lot of, um, you know, this is what you do, and then you do this, and then you do this. In other words, they're not open-ended um, you know, just sitting in boundless space. They're not that kind of practice. The other kind of practice... They're called training. It's actually called... That word is used to talk about training. Yeah, they're called... They're often translated in English as creation, creation practice or development practice. You are creating yourself as a practitioner. You are developing as a practitioner. And all Vajrayanas would say there has to be a good dose of creation stage practices. They're not the ultimate. They're not, the be- they're not where we want to end up, uh, but they're necessary. And then the other kind of practice is called, devel- is called fulfillment practice. So it's development practice and fulfillment practice or creation practice and fulfillment practice. The fulfillment practices are obviously practices in which you finally get to the point. And those practices um, are the, the real jewel of Vajrayana. Um, they are formless practices. And this is where you, you've, some of you have heard the terms Mahamudra and Dzogchen. This is where Mahamudra and Dzogchen are fitted in where the, the 
highly insightful, completely non-dogmatic, completely formless. Uh, the practice is, quite frankly, that a lot of uh, contemporary Vipassana teachers have done and studied. I, we're reading, in my study group in Eau Claire right now, we're reading Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness. And Joseph Goldstein quotes all the time Mahamudra and Dzogchen teachings that I'm very, very familiar with. So it's, uh, it's, um, there's a lot of affinity between the development stage Vajrayana practices and the, the real, what, what Theravada teachings really are about. There's a lot of consonance between those two sets of teachings and uh, many, many uh, of the senior Vipassana teachers have studied with Tibetan teachers. Uh, they don't do Utpati, but they've studied with Tibetan teachers. So we're going to do Utpati before lunch. Uh, any questions about what I've said? Because the terminology is important. Yes. So the Utpati practices are more like preliminary practices? They're preliminary the practices. Various like 100,000 prostrations. I'll go through all, all of that. Things, yeah. I'm going to go through all of yeah. that, yeah. Okay. There's a lot of preliminary, there's a lot of uh, creation stage practices that I need to talk about. There's a lot of them. Now these days, unfortunately these days in North America in particular, Early training in Vajrayana Buddhism is often very uh, inadequate, in my view. In my view, I'm very critical of the way many people are brought into Vajrayana practice in North America because people are not required to have a good grounding in Buddhist teachings and to know basic Buddhist teachings inside out and backwards and forwards, which I think, you know... I mean, that's what you're trying to realize in the long run. You're trying to understand the four truths and interdependence and the three marks. That's what you're trying to internalize to make your own, your own system so that when, when you breathe, you're breathing four truths. They're not theoretical to you. That's what we're trying for. So how can you skip that stage of training and go straight for the disciplines that the Tibetans tend to like best. So I'm very, I'm very opinionated. I'm opinionated about that. I don't like to have opinions, but I do have that opinion. <laughs> that you need to have a very good grounding in fundamental Buddhist teachings. And you should have, in my view, you should have some facility in basic sitting meditation, in silent practice. That's my view. Now, that's partly because that's the way I was trained. As a student of Trungpa Rinpoche, the standards were very, very high. And many of the contemporary Tibetan teachers are, just don't have his same high standards, in my view. So when I was trained, um, we had to spend years in uh, silent practice. And we were expected to do an hour of silent practice a day on our own. Um, we were trained in, um, you know, we called it shamatha vipassana. That's what we called it. And it, it was 
shamatha. It actually had a larger dose of Mahamudra in it than we realized at the time. And we were all required to do a practice called datun. You don't need to learn that Tibetan word. We were all required to do 30 days of silent practice at a residential retreat center. And I still regard a 30-day silent practice retreat as kind of a foundation bottom line for anybody who's going to be serious. I don't care whether you're, you know, or it's equivalent. I mean, Zen people don't usually do 30 days, but obviously in the Vipassana movement you do more than 30 days. I regard that as, you know, indispensable foundation practice. Preliminary practice. Preliminary practices are also foundation practices because you're building the foundation for later on being able to truly understand egolessness and emptiness. Nobody understands those concepts, you know, just like that and by reading a single book. It takes a lot of introspection, which is what I want to talk about tomorrow when I give the Dharma talk on how to internalize the Dharma. Because I think that's training that's missing in a lot of places. People don't, you know, people teach you these theoretical concepts, but nobody talks about how do you make that, the blood that flows in your own body. That's not easy. And it can't be done just intellectually. Nor, in my view, can it be done just by sitting correctly on the cushion. I do not believe that it's just a matter of sitting correctly on the cushion. And if you sit on the cushion for 89 million hours, it'll be there. I just don't think it works that way. So that was the training I had. Of, uh, it was uh, a number of years of doing a lot of uh, silent practice on my own, participating in this 30-day group residential retreat, um, and uh, studying basic Buddhism a lot, studying foundation teachings, studying Mahayana teachings, learning all those terms, knowing all that language, uh, reading texts. I think that's absolutely essential. I don't think there are any shortcuts to enlightenment in a single lifetime. So, you know, either you want that or you don't. But if you do want it, the things that you have to do. There are preliminaries. So um, then what's formally called the preliminaries, the first set of Vajrayana practices that one is allowed to do are called the Vajrayana preliminaries by most people. Um, I'm not going to give you the Tibetan terms. There's no, need, there's no need for them to know that, is there? Many might know the Tibetan terms. Nundro. Uh, so Nundro, uh, Nundro is not used by all Tibetan Buddhists. The Galugpas very rarely use it. The Dalai Lama sect very, very rarely uses the preliminaries, but they're very big for Kagyu and Nyingma Buddhists, which is what I've been trained in. I've been trained first as, uh, with Trungpa Rinpoche as a Kagyu Buddhist and then with Khandra Rinpoche as a, as a Nyingma Buddhist. Um, so there are four, it's divided up this way, there are four ordinary preliminaries and four um, extraordinary preliminaries. And the four ordinary preliminaries, 
are also called the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma. And I think they're incredibly beautiful, useful teachings that I do them every day. I, you know, they're pre- sure they're preliminaries. The preliminaries are usually the most profound thing there is. So the, the ordinary preliminaries, I have here with me a, a Vajrayana liturgy that I like very, very much. It's a simple Vajrayana liturgy. It's not an esoteric one, but I'm going to use it a lot for going through what we do as Vajrayana practice. The first ordinary preliminary is appreciating, contemplating on, appreciating the preciousness of having a human birth. The text I know best, if I can still rattle off from memory, is precious human birth free and well-favored, difficult to obtain, easy to lose. Now I must do something useful. So, you know, I mean, that's something everybody could think about every day and it would be of great benefit. Precious human birth, free and well-favored, difficult to obtain, easy to lose, Now I must do something useful. Which is a very, you know, to have a free and well-favored human birth, that's a point that a lot of Tibetan teachers really, really use. That it's it's, uh, not to be taken for granted. There are millions more beings that are not human than are human. Millions and millions and millions more beings that are not human. And they don't have the endowments we do. And then among human beings, there are many who do not have a free and fortunate birth. Among human beings, there are many, many who who are born into poverty, born into war, born into circumstances where they have no opportunities to learn, to use their rationality where they have no opportunity whatsoever to practice a spiritual discipline. They have to spend all of their time just hoeing the ground, trying to make a living, hunting animals, working on assembly lines, um, you know, working, trying to get blood diamonds. It's, it's It's really helpful to really think seriously. Because obviously we all like to complain about poor me. And this is what I need that I don't have. And that becomes pretty shallow compared to thinking about having a precious human birth, free and well-favored. And, you know, these, these disciplines, these four ordinary preliminaries, I think, are useful for all Buddhists. There's a reason why they should be thought of as Vajrayana or Tibetan or anything like that. So in, uh, in this uh, text that I have here, this is the way the first reminder is phrased. This, human, this precious human existence is like an Udambara flower. Uh, Udambara is a mythical flower that blooms once a century. And it's supposed to be very beautiful. Difficult to attain and again in the future. Today, therefore, I will give it supreme meaning. And these four ordinary thoughts are the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma. It's always said, when you forget why we're practicing, 
turn your mind to these four because if you understand these four you won't you won't complain about having to do dharma practice you won't say why can't there be a shortcut why does it have to be you know so long or why does it why is it so boring to follow my breath Blanche Hartman at the Zen Center, I once sat a one-day session with her, and she told at the end of it, she said, the student who was complaining that this practice of following the breath, it's getting awfully boring. Can't you give us a different practice? And the response was, yeah. I thought for a minute, yeah, I'll give you a different practice. Don't breathe. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, The second ordinary preliminary is impermanence and the certainty of death. Impermanence and the certainty of death. The way it's phrased in this text, I think, is very beautiful. This perfect and precious body. Now, that's how we should think of our bodies, as perfect and precious. All of this, I need to lose 25 pounds is... It's so so comforting not to get caught up in all that worldly stuff about the body and it not being adequate. This perfect and precious body is impermanent like dew on the tip of a blade of grass. Since the time of death is uncertain, I will apply great diligence to attain enlightenment. And they're not shy. I will apply great diligence to attain enlightenment. Because the precious body is impermanent. Uh, Tibetans like to say, I mean, Tibetans are very good about the certainty of death and adjusting our minds to the certainty of death and that we need to... Well, Buddhists have become the death experts in every culture we've gone into because we're so clear that, you know, death is real and comes without warning. This body will be a corpse. Now I must do something useful. That's the version of the second reminder that was the one I used. Death is real and comes without warning. This body will be a corpse. Now I must do now I must do something useful. So well, this very common statement is death is certain, only the time of death is uncertain. Which is, of course, true. And it's useful to think about that. Uh, Another statement that Tibetans make, I used to resent this one so much, all meetings end in parting. That used to seem so depressing to me. Oh, God, that's... It's true, all meetings end in parting. And I cannot, you know, I cannot emphasize enough the serenity that can come with becoming, beginning to become much more comfortable with the certainty of death and much less, you know, freaked out about, oh, I have to die. I can remember many, many years ago I would fantasize my own funeral and of course we are always witnesses of our own funerals. And I was witnessing my own funeral and I love Russian Orthodox music so that's what I had played and I was there watching my own funeral wailing away. That stuff doesn't happen to me anymore. It, it just doesn't happen to me anymore. 
then really can rewire, we really can rewire one's, you know, outlook, which I think is what Buddhism is about, is rewiring our old habitual patterns, the habitual patterns we've had for so long that get us into so much trouble. And these four reminders are very, very useful at that. Preciousness of the human body, the certainty of death, those are the first two. Then the third and fourth are often interchanged, depending on different teachers teach them in different order. I've seen them both ways. The th- I'll give the third as the unsatisfactoriness of samsara. I translate samsara as conventional existence, just living conventionally with what worldly people want, what worldly people think life is about, and what conventional people think will make them happier. So the third reminder, as I'm teaching it, is on the unsatisfactoriness of samsara. That no matter what, this is the first truth, of course, that no matter what we get in conventional existence, It's never going to really do the trick. It's just not going to work. It just won't. Which doesn't mean we shouldn't have nice things. It just means don't expect them to, you know, satisfy us permanently. It won't. So that's the third reminder of the unsatisfactoriness of living life conventionally. What a waste. Especially if we've already got a free and well-favored human birth, not just a regular human birth. And this distinction between a free and well-favored human birth, which is what all of us have, you know, we're not toiling in a mine somewhere. We're not working on an assembly line. And then the fourth reminder is about the inexorability of karma, that what we do matters. that there are no throwaways. What we do matters. And um, karma is, I think, if there is a bottom line Buddhist belief, is there anything you have to believe in to be a Buddhist? I would say if there is anything you have to agree with, it's karma. It's not rebirth, it's karma. That what we do has consequences. And those consequences follow um, like the track of a wheel follows driving a cart down a road. The consequences of our deeds follow, and there's an inevitability about it. That's what all the teachings on interdependence are about, that if you do this, that will result. That's the simplest form of karma. If this arises, that arises. That not arising, this doesn't arise. Very simple. That's in the polytext. Very simple, very straightforward. If you do this, that will follow. If you don't do this, that doesn't follow. Kundar and Pachayusi loves to tease people about stuff like this. He says, oh, you people are always so worried about laying down the conditions for rebirth in a hell realm. If you don't want to be reborn in a hell realm, don't do the things that get you reborn there. That's all. That's all. Just don't do that stuff. You can guarantee it. 
No big deal. You don't have to worry about it. No big deal. Just don't do that stuff. Um, but uh, karma and the, the fact that what we do matters. Now, in this text, the third and the fourth reminders are phrased together. Uh, the ocean of samsara is vast and endless with tumultuous waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. It is difficult to be free from its unending depths. Therefore, I will practice the sublime dharma to attain liberation. And again, it's not shy. I will practice the sublime dharma to attain liberation. So I would actually encourage um, anybody and everybody you've taken notes on these texts, and uh, I think everybody could well be recommended to integrate this into a daily practice. Um, I think that if you, you know, it doesn't take very long, and you can do it anywhere, anytime. You can do it in the middle of other activities. Um, I think if you can't do everything, it's far more useful to contemplate the four reminders and really take them to heart than to uh, sit on a cushion and thoughtlessly follow your breath for 20 minutes. We have something in the Theravada tradition that's very similar that we do as a daily practice. Oh, good. Tell me about it. Yeah. The five recollections. The five, the five recollections. This is I am nature to age. I cannot. I am not oh, yeah. beyond aging. I am nature to be ill. And the last one is, is karma. Well, would you say that? Oh, so I, I am the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am the nature to be ill. I have not gone beyond illness. I have nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will come otherwise. I will become separated from me. I am the owner of my actions, heir of my actions, born of my actions, ready through my actions, and abide supported by my actions. Whatever actions I shall do for good or for evil, I shall become the heir of. We should often reflect on this. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Now, isn't that nice to know that that's where Vajrayana practitioners start? Rather than regarding, you know, Vajrayanas as people who have a lot of magical thinking, which... Well, it's also good that Vajrayana knows that that's where Theravada's practice. Pardon? It's also good that Vajrayanas know that they're not the only ones with preliminary practice. I don't think, I don't think most, I mean, I think most Vajrayanas would know this is core Buddhist teaching, that they don't have a monopoly. Yeah. Well, what the Vajrayanas say is that Theravadins have a good understanding of egolessness. They just don't understand emptiness thoroughly. That's the Vajrayana prejudice. But no, they, they do not deny that there's an understanding of karma and egolessness in the, early, in the early period of Buddhism. It just wasn't complete. So uh, when you're doing Nundro... Uh, that should be what guides one's nundra practice, and it keeps coming up all the time. Those are the ordinary preliminaries, and then there are four extraordinary preliminaries, which I don't think, uh, maybe the first one will be somewhat familiar. The other three won't be. (laughs) They will seem very weird. Um, and this is where you start doing the hundred thousands. Somebody asked me about the hundred thousands. I'll have something to say though about the hundred thousands. Make sure that I don't forget what to say about the hundred thousands. So the four extraordinary preliminaries are first um, 
Refuge in Bodhicitta. Refuge in Bodhicitta. Now, Bodhicitta, rousing the mind of enlightenment or rousing the mind to attain complete perfect in, the complete perfect enlightenment of a Buddha for the well-being of all beings. That's what bodhicitta means. The motivation to uh, attain complete, the complete perfect enlightenment of a Buddha for the peace and well-being of all beings. That's very, you know, that's a very school book, very standard definition. But since bodhicitta is not a Theravada notion, uh, it's important to explain what they're going after. And, uh, you know, insofar as we will talk about attaining the complete perfect enlightenment of a Buddha and maybe doing it in this lifetime, <laughs> we need to know what, what we're doing. Refuge, of course, is refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Though uh, in Vajrayana, there's also often refuge in the Guru. And in addition to that, refuge in the, um, in the Yidams and the Protectors. But I don't want to go into that right now. But refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. That's refuge. And Bodhicitta, I've explained what Bodhicitta is. In, Vajra, in Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism, you cannot take refuge without also taking bodhicitta. It just, it's just not liturgically possible. The two are considered to go together. That why would you do one without the other? Now, how then takes refuge in bodhicitta as an extraordinary preliminary? First of all, the formula is repeated over and over and over and over and over. And I do believe in repetition as a very useful learning device. The things that are pithy, things that are trustworthy, to really implant them in our systems Repeating them over and over is not meaningless. It, it's how we, how you tell people, it's how you get the, you know, the words on the page there don't do you much good. It's just a theoretical concept. When it's here, then it does you some good. And repetition is one of the ways to get things inside us. So, um, the for, and there are different formulas in different liturgies. Oh, there are different formulas for refuge in bodhicitta in different liturgies. But what most people are familiar with, what you've heard, the, the horror story about what people who practice Tibetan Buddhism have to go through, is that while doing refuge in bodhicitta, while reciting refuge in bodhicitta, you prostrate. I think I can still do this. Whoops, I'm tied. I'm attached. A Buddhist should never be attached. <laughs> so I think I can still do this.
as you So as you can see, even if you're fairly young, it's going to take a while to do a lot of them. Uh, and in some systems of Tibetan Buddhism, you need to do a lot of them. Now, a prostration is something that many people do throughout their lifetimes. And Zen Buddhists do prostrations as well. Do you do them? Yep. Are you asking me? No, people here. But prostrations are considered to be a you know, useful practice throughout one's life. First of all, as exercise, they're quite good. <laughs> they're quite good as exercise. And um, to, to have the, you know, to have the humility to take the eye down. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it's Buddha Dharma and Sangha that we're prostrating to, not some idiot. Yes. Um, when I first started, I did them, and I did a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And who are you studying with? Um, Lama um, <laughs> Jetson Yeshe, but she Catherine Rathbun, uh, Canada, Toronto. Hmm. But. My experience was that it, um, it, it, if, I, if this is correct, it felt like the Dharma became embodied in my body mm-hmm. when I did it. It, it solidified the mm-hmm. practice inside of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, if you're ready for it, if, it's about submission. It's about submitting to things as they are and no longer demanding to have it all my way. You know, and that's a hard lesson to learn, that there are things we're not going to have our way, no matter what we do. And, you know, it's about giving in, giving up, giving in, giving in to reality as it is, being willing to go along with things as they are, which is, of course, the heart of Buddhism, and not so easy for many people to learn. Many people... You know, insist for a long time. I want it to be my way. So, um, you know, I don't, I, I, we still, when, we prostrate when the teacher enters the room. So three half prostrations, half prostrations, you only go down on your knees and touch your forehead to the floor. They're a lot less vigorous. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think prostrations are a really good discipline. I did mine, I think I was, how old was I? I was in my 30s. Let's see, 1980, I would have been 37. I, I was really ready. I was really, really ready to throw myself into Dharma, full steam ahead. And I found them. I just, I, I just loved them. I just loved doing it. I did 100,000 in six months while I was working full time. And I just... They are just so um, 
it was like, for me, it was like, this is the way to develop my complete trust in the Dharma. That's what it did for me, was because I could do that, that the Dharma was not going to disappoint me. Everything else I had ever tried had disappointed me. Everything else I had ever tried did not live up to its promise. And being able to do prostrations that intensely gave me confidence that Dharma would never disappoint me. And it never has. Somebody wanted to... The question is, is through years of experience, I'm certainly there are people that can't do them. Yeah. I mean, I could have done them when I'm in my 30s, in my 60s now. Right, Forget right. I so how do they resolve that? Or how, well, how do see teachers work with that? There are that? ways to resolve it. Uh, if the liturgy is long enough, you just repeat the liturgy enough times. Um, some people do them as quote-unquote tabletops, which means you're sitting on the floor and just... Um, throw your upper body down a table. My current teacher doesn't like that. Uh, there are ways to modify it because some people's bodies can't do it. Uh, and certainly the easiest way to modify it would be to have a long enough liturgy that you repeated the liturgy uh, repeated the liturgy enough times that would do it too. I will read you the Refuge and Bodhicitta liturgy from this uh, short Vajrayana text. Ooh, that was not good. Um, this is the Refuge and Bodhicitta text. I and all limitless sentient beings, when you do prostrations, you never do them only for yourself. You visualize your parents on each side of you. You visualize your friend with you and your enemy with you and also all the animals uh, and all beings and you're doing them on behalf of all beings. I and all limitless sentient beings from now until attaining the essence of enlightenment take refuge with body, speech and mind in all the objects of refuge. So it's body, speech, mind. This will be body, speech, mind will be very important as we go through Vajrayana disciplines. The three gates to the the three main ways we engage or interact with the world outside us are bodies, which are symbolized, which is our head center, our forehead center. Speech is obviously the throat center. And mind is the heart center. Mind is in the heart center. It is not in the brain. Mind is here, which is pretty common in Asia. That's not just Tibetan. I and all limitless sentient beings from now until attaining the essence of enlightenment take refuge with body, speech, and mind in all the objects of refuge in order to establish in the state of great bliss all sentient beings deluded by the ignorance of not seeing their own intrinsic awareness, I generate the supreme enlightened mind. So that's your refuge and bodhicitta verse. Uh, the bodhicitta verse again, in order to establish in the state of great bliss all sentient beings deluded by the ignorance of not seeing their own intrinsic awareness, I generate the mind of supreme enlightenment. There's a lot in that verse. Um, 
what makes others it's obvious it's being this is all being done on behalf of all beings it's never done just for oneself Vajrayana practice is never done only for moi never Uh, but what makes sentient beings suffer is ignorance we all know that We've all learned that one way or another, that ignorance is the big problem underlying all of our other kleshas is always the klesha of ignorance. So all sentient beings are deluded by the ignorance of not seeing their own intrinsic awareness. Their own intrinsic awareness. Um, Vajrayana, Mahayana, I guess, I think it's a Buddhist belief, um, is that all beings are inherently enlightened, but we miss that point. Now, I do not think, people say that teachings on Buddha nature were not taught until Mahayana. I do not agree with that at all. Uh, there's a few teachings, few statements in the Pali texts that lend themselves very easily to Buddha nature teachings. But just the Buddha taught that if you do these practices, you can become enlightened. That's Buddha nature. You don't need any Mahayana fancy-dancy teachings. If you, if, you, if you think that Buddhist teachings work, you believe in Buddha nature. You believe that you have the capability to become enlightened, eventually at least, hopefully sooner later than, sooner later than rather. So the great ignorance that all beings suffer from is not seeing their own, what they really are, what we really are, what our potential, we, we, we have a very diminished view of who we are and what we could accomplish. We have very low self-esteem. We don't, Buddhists haven't traditionally used that language, but that's what it comes down to. We, we have a very low estimation of our capabilities and our potential. So one takes the, bodhi, the bodhicitta vow um, to establish in the state of great bliss all sentient beings deluded by the ignorance of not seeing their own intrinsic awareness. I generate the supreme enlightened mind. Now bound up in that statement also is a statement that uh, if you are not ignorant if you are not in ignorance, that's bliss. That's a nice teaching, isn't it? If you're not ignorant, it's not ignorance is bliss, it's lack of ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Quite the reverse. So, uh, and in you know, Vajrayana language, we do talk about bliss. We are not too shy about that word. But we have to understand what bliss is. Bliss is not being ignorant. Bliss is having a clear and knowing mind and, you know, um, appreciating our precious human birth. What, what else would bliss be? Um, did you want to say something, Nona? You asked Tommy to remind you about something. Oh, about the numbers. Well, we're not there yet. This 
brought to mind that in the Theravada tradition there is this idea of dedicating merit, um, which you know we may not do the practices in the moment for all beings, but there's this sense that what's mm -hmm. generated can be dedicated. I wonder if you could link that in. Yeah, is well, there a link? Yes, there is. Um, we dedicate... Um, we, at the end of a practice session, the merit is dedicated for all sentient beings. So even if you've forgotten why you're practicing, at the end, you do it anyway. But, you know, when you have a phrase here, I and all limitless sentient beings, that sort of reminds you. And this whole notion of um, dedicating merit, when did dedication of merit come into Theravada Buddhism? Can you answer that, Nona? Because this is one of my proofs against uh, conceited Mahayanists that they have some sort of a superior set of compassion teachings. I can't, does anybody remember what merit means? Merit, what's the word for? Punya. Punya. So, punya is in the Pali Canon. But, so. but punya is in the Pali Canon. What about dedicating the punya? I'm not, I don't think it was, I don't remember the actual lines, but of of the dedication of merit. Does anybody remember this? There is in the... I mean, there, in, my, in my training in Theravada Buddhism from you know early days, it's always been part of it. And punya... Oh, wait, it's coming to... It will come to me. And now I'm remembering some verses from... Uh, certainly from the Terigata, where they are ter dedicating the merit. Punya is, is being offered... Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, because there is, uh, there, is a, uh, there is a train of thinking um, that says pure Buddhism is, so, is because there is no external help. You know, this very really narrow version of Buddhism that some scholars have gotten into, which I don't think has ever been real Buddhism. Um, you know, Melford Spiro's confusion when he started encountering Buddhism in the field, and it didn't accord to what he had read in texts without any commentary by a teacher. You know, he had read the classic texts, and he said, oh, Buddhism, there's no external help at all. It's completely on your own. It's only your own. What you do yourself is the only thing that counts, so therefore dedication of merit couldn't be an authentic Buddhist practice. It has to be something that's a later practice when they started softening the religion to make it a little easier. But anyway, I've been very relieved to find out that dedication of merit is a you know, basic Theravada practice. And that's one of the things I tell my Mahayanists friends who like to go on and on about the superiority of compassion practices in Mahayana Buddhism. Yes, there's good compassion practices in Mahayana Buddhism. They don't have to therefore jump to a conclusion that you have them all. So that's the first extraordinary preliminary. I'm not going to do the numbers till later because all three of the, all four of the extraordinary preliminaries uh, have a um, number component to them. So prostrations, refuge in bodhicitta is about... Um, giving up and submitting and giving in to the way things are. And uh, after that, the next set of practices in the extraordinary preliminaries are um, purification practices. Purification practices with um, a very, very long mantra. 
<laughs> you did them. The hundred syllable mantra of Vajrasattva, V A J R A S A T T V A. So, um, you know, we've given up, given in, but there's still a lot of junk in our system, according to this way of looking at things. We still have a lot of junk in our system. And so to take care of the junk in our systems, there's a visualization that's done. I'll talk about visualization in a bit. I don't want to talk about it a lot right now, but as all of you know, visualization practices are are big deal in Vajrayana Buddhism. They're really important. And I think this is what gives us a reputation for being a little airy-fairy or something, is all the visualization that we do. But the visualization for the purification practice is that one visualizes on one's head a, uh, a yidam, a deity. And I, we'll talk about that later. And um, this is a very uh, advanced, purified being, of not a Buddha, but the equivalent to a Buddha. And that being, one visualizes oneself as just, who we are, you're sitting there like this, just yourself, and you, you visualize your body as uh, filled with impurities and gunk. And from the, from um, sometimes the toe, sometimes another place on this being that's visualized on top of your head, a white, uh, white liquid pours down through your body and it pours through your whole body and comes out either your feet or your anus and your whole body becomes white. Now some people of color have had, you know, pretty political objections to this, to which my teacher says, look, I don't care what color you do. If you want to do green and purple, that's fine. But, you know, African groups also symbolize black and white just the way we do. And I've studied African symbol systems enough to know what I'm talking about. So that just seems to be common symbolism that we come relatively programmed with. And if it's bothersome, turn it into green and purple. Um, but you visualize the, this white liquid coming in through your system going through your system, draining through your system, taking out all of, the, uh, all of the inadequacies and all of the impurities. And at the end of the set session, you will be pure white. And you merge with the deity that is visualized on the top of your head. Is that how you remember it? You visualize with... Whenever you visualize a quote-unquote deity in Vajrayana Buddhism, you always merge the two of you together. It's not that there's a separate being at all. It's that it's a, it's, a, it's a more enlightened form of yourself, a form of yourself that's more enlightened than you currently are. So you visualize the relationship dualistically, but you end the relationship by visualizing them merging together. So that's uh, purification, the second of the extraordinary preliminaries considered to be very important um, especially if you've done misdeeds that this is 
by many Tibetans take this quite literally as a way to purify misdeeds. If you've done terrible things, you, you take it on and you, you say, yes, I did it. Uh, and I'm not proud of it. And um, you purify yourself of it. And the mantra is a hundred syllables long. So it takes a while. I see. It takes a while. How many seconds does it take to say it? Well, I'm not going to say it and I'm not going to time it, but it takes a while. So that's the second of the preliminaries and the third preliminary. Now you're, you know, you've given in and you've cleaned up and you're fine. So now the next discipline is generosity. To just give it all away. Everything you've accomplished is given away. Um, and this, uh, this is a pretty complicated ritual. It's called mandala offering, and you do it with, um, you have, um, I guess you'd call them plates, stacked one on top of another. You've seen this done, right, Nona? I've done them. Okay. I've done all of these. Oh, I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't, know, I didn't know you had done Nundra. I have never, I didn't do 100,000. Oh. I got bored. <laughs> So um, you've got these plates, and uh, you, do the, you do the liturgy with rice, which symbolizes all good things. Rice is, you know, the staff of life. And you have jewels and money in that rice, so that you've also got worldly riches in it. And you take a scoop of rice in your hand, and you let it flow out, and you place it in seven heaps on your plate, and then you brush it all off, and then you do it again, and you brush it all off. And you do that over and over and over while you're reciting the liturgy. And this builds up gratitude and generosity. Grat- you know, gratitude and generosity, which after you've given in and after you've gotten cleaned up, it's good to develop gratitude and generosity. Yes? Mandala offering. You have your, your you have your plate. You have rice. It's actually been dyed in saffron water, so it's a very rich yellow color. And it has uh, jewels in it and money. So it has worldly riches as well as, you know, the staff of life food. You take a hoop scoop of it in your hand, in your right hand, and you let it flow out, you know, out your the bottom of your hand, and you place it in seven mounds on your mandala plate. They represent the sun, the moon, let's see, the the sun, the moon, Mount Meru, the four continents. That's what it represents. So you're giving away, symbolically, you're giving away everything. You're giving away the entire cosmos. You know have taken on everything and you give everything away. So the sun, the moon, Mount Meru, and the four continents, what else is there? <laughs> you know, I mean, giving away everything. 
So that is uh, the third of the four preliminaries, and we don't have a text for it here. There's a different text, which maybe I'll go through, maybe I won't. Then the fourth of the extraordinary preliminaries is called Guru Yoga. And Guru Yoga is uh, a, it's a very short practice. It's not as long as the other practices. And in Guru Yoga, you simply sit in Anjali, um, supplicating over and over and over for the Guru to accept you into the guru's world to become so that you are ready to be initiated into full-fledged vajrayana practice you do this to be eligible and ready to be initiated to do full-fledged vajrayana practice because these are preliminaries to vajrayana practice this is preliminary vajrayana practice there's a whole stage beyond that um, so uh, we, I will entertain some questions about relationship with the guru in Vajrayana Buddhism because that tends to be something people have a lot of difficulties with. And I guess now I should talk about the numbers business. A lot of contemporary teachers think that you do all four of these practices 108,000 times um, or in some cases a million times. And I have in fact done them 108,000 done the Guru Yoga a million times. Um, it is very time-consuming. It's very, very time-consuming. And for people who, you know, modern Westerners who are trying to make a living and raise a family, it can be very, very difficult. Now, one could also ask, how much should Buddhists just be bound up in conventional worldly life? I have some real misgivings about the notion that you can do it all, that you can, uh, you know, have a successful business and... Uh, raise a family and have a bunch of kids and also get enlightened in this lifetime. I have some reservations about that. I just don't think it's all that easy to do, do it all or have it all. Um, but anyway, so there's lots of, you know, lots of uh, talk, discussion these days about what number, how much. It's actually your own teacher should set the number. Um, in the Kagyu, the Kagyu lineage tends to be a little more by the book, so they tend to emphasize big numbers. In the Nyingma, sadhanas, they, Nyingma Sanghas, they tend to be more whatever your teacher thinks you need to do. And so with her new students, my teacher is now always adjusting the numbers. Sometimes she says, do all four of them every day for two years. Sometimes she says, do the first two every day for a year and the second two day every day for a year, and that, that's enough. So people are trying to say, you know, daily practice is important uh, because a lot of people who did it the way I did it get into doing intensive bursts of practice and then not doing anything for, yeah, <laughs> not doing anything for days on end, which isn't such a good way to go about it. So my teacher is, is really emphasizing the regularity of the practice every day and not so much. Even if you only do seven prostrations in a day, that's sufficient. But doing it every day is emphasized by her. So there's a lot of discussion these days about uh, how, that, how that works. So if there are questions about relationship with the guru in Vajrayana or other questions about what I've said thus far. Yes. 
I'll be good. <laughs> I'll raise my own. I'll call on me. Um, uh, first of all, thank you. It's very interesting to hear the way that the uh, preliminary practices are, are taught within, and especially when you, how you practiced them when you began. Um, the, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about hearing, be, first of all, let me just say that Jetsuma Tenson Palmo, who um, you know, teaches, she's the woman, for those of you who don't know, who's a British woman who spent her claim to fame is spending 12 years in a cave, and she's a wonderful, wonderful teacher, and I've had the fortune to get to spend time with her recently. And she, her um, feeling is that be, many Theravada practitioners that she's met, she says, feel, she feels like because our emphasis, the emphasis that we're given is developing the, the what we call the paramis, or the baramis, and what you call the paramitas, um, and for us, it's the ten. That's the that is the prelim, number one preliminary training, and it's also the path of purification. Mm-hmm. So if you really work on each one of those, really work on them. You know, mm-hmm. they're not just good things that you think about occasionally, but mm-hmm. really make it part of your practice. That she feels like that is a very effective, re, not a replacement, but practice for as a as a preliminary practice for Westerners. And her theory is that because Tibetans were nomadic and didn't have much time around other people, that it was very important that that they had these different kind of practices because they were often alone or solitary. Mm -hmm. That's um, interesting. Yeah. And she's also a big proponent on assigning numbers, um, you know, that some people would do 8,000 preliminary somethings and other rather than 100,000. She said many Tibetans, of course, do the 108,000 repetitively. So they do it their whole, entire lifetime until they can't stand up anymore, which, yeah, you know, just... I think I did 40 and gave up. But no, I'm just teasing. You did 40? No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm being self-deprecating. Other well, and also, you know, for Vajrayana practitioners, the Mahayana Paramitas... Uh, the six the, in Mahayana, there are six major paramitas. There's serious training in the six major paramitas. The uh, second four, because there are ten paramitas in Mahayana Buddhism as well. Uh, there's not so much training in the uh, other four paramitas, but that that training is also taken very seriously. So there's not a formal. That, in fact, is something people should have done. They should have a good founding in basic Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism, in my view, before starting this Nundro stuff. Though most Tibetans don't teach it that way these days. So, oh, I'm interested in hearing you say something about the um, guru relationship because, of course, in Theravadan Buddhism, the teacher is like a friend on the path. Um, so, so, anyway, I'd, I'd just like to hear about the guru, because I yeah. think that is something way above. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are three levels of teacher. Uh, the first level of teacher is the preceptor, and the preceptor gives you refuge vows uh, and also bodhisattva vows. And then the Mahayana teacher is the spiritual friend, the Kalyana Mitra, um, who should be, you know, wise and caring and compassionate, but also able to tell you to pull up your socks when you need to be told to pull up your... In other words, not a softy. 
And then the third level of teacher is the guru, which is only at the level of Vajrayana practice. Unless you're doing Vajrayana practices, you don't have a guru. You may have a Kalyanamitra or a preceptor. And, um, you know, there's a lot of exaggeration about the guru in Tibetan Buddhism and what gurus will demand of students and all of that. Most of that is gossip. Um, you know, I haven't worked with a lot of gurus. Some people, this is not recommended. Some people, you know, want to have a hundred teachers. They're always running after another teacher. That is not recommended by good teachers. Uh, and I make fun of people who have too many teachers. You know, they'll have their practice table and they'll have like 15, 20 people who are their teachers. And many, many Tibetans and good teachers will say, too many teachers. Spiritual materialism, too many teachers. So that's one of my skepticisms. Uh, you know, I've worked with two gurus. I've worked with Trungpa Rinpoche, well, three actually, because I've also worked with the Sakyang Sum as guru. Uh, and I've worked with Khandu Rinpoche. The guru is the one who initiates you into doing full-fledged Vajrayana Utpati or form practices, which I'm about to uh, go into talking about. And it is always said that you cannot do real Vajrayana practice just from reading about it in a book. There are books that tell you, that describe the whole thing. But unless you're initiated, unless you have the oral transmission teacher to student, you just won't get it. You won't do it right. Uh, and I think this is, among other things, this is about the genuine power, the tremendous power of the teacher-student relationship, which pertains even in the secular world. Um, and one of the stories I always tell on myself to talk about, do you really do need a te personal teacher? You really do need a person in teacher. I got bought a computer in 1985, and I was trying to learn how to use it. And I didn't get very far. I could, just couldn't get very far. I, re I, know, I know how to read manuals. I have a PhD. I know how to read manuals. I should be able to teach myself this. And I wasn't getting very far. I was trying to, I guess I was trying to teach myself word perfect now that I think back on what it was in, by 86. So I realized I just wasn't getting anywhere. So I decided, okay, what do I have to do? I have to sign up at the technical, local technical college to take a course on introduction to word processing. I signed up for the course on introduction to word processing. I never even finished it because I got it right away. But I got it because there was a teacher there. When I was stuck, the teacher would come over and show me what to do. And that's what the guru is about in Vajrayana Buddhism. Now, unfortunately, a lot of gurus don't have as much of a hands-on relationship with their individual students as they should have. Many of them have too many students. Uh, they travel around all over the world and they have a lot of students, they do a lot of empowerments because they need to earn money to support their monasteries and nunneries back in India um, because, you know, there isn't that wealthy. There's not much of a donor class in Tibetan Buddhism. Chinese Buddhism has a huge donor class, but Tibetan Buddhism... So, and the Tibetans, for instance, like to go to Taiwan because they get big donations. So there's, you know, there's a lot of kind of corruption that creeps in 
in part due to economic issues and lack of patrons, lack of support. It's obviously pretty expensive to keep a monastery running with a lot of monks and nuns in it, and, you know, you don't turn away people who want to be uh, ordained, but you've then got to feed them. And so, you know, a lot of gurus don't have that much of a one-on-one relationship with students. I've been extremely fortunate in that I have a very close relationship with Kanda Rinpoche, and I consider very few people have as close a relationship with a guru as I have with her. Uh, and she, she's been very supportive of me. She's been very supportive of my radical scholarship. Uh, you know, she will she will tell her own other Western students, shut up and listen. She's teaching this stuff because I give her permission to, so you should listen, which is, you know, truly wonderful. And the, one of the things about a guru that I've found is that being affirmed by someone you really trust and value does incredible things for your own inner well-being. Because, you know, as a, as a feminist woman, I've been put down by a lot of people. I've been denigrated a lot. for You know, you shouldn't, don't be a feminist, be nice. Women are supposed to be nice. You're much too strong and strident. That's not attractive. Be nice. Um, and to, I mean, Kanda Rinpoche is, you've never met her. Uh, she's as feisty, she's way more feisty than I am. She's very, very feisty. And to have someone, you know, whom I really respect and trust really basically say, right on. You're on the right track. Go for it. I will support you in every way I can. That's rare and worth something. Now, I'm not saying that you, you, you study with a teacher, you're going to develop that kind of a relationship with a teacher. But Daikanda uh, Rinpoche, most teachers, at least when they're teaching, like they make a teaching tour of the West, they will spend a lot of time with their close students, not one-on-one. But you don't really need to have a lot of time one-on-one because they have an ability to see where your mind is at. And so, like when she teaches in the West, uh, she will teach for... Two, three weekends and the two full weeks in between, and she teaches uh, two talks a day, day after day after day. She teaches a lot. She takes a lot of Q&A. Uh, she also does give private interviews in which you can ask. You know, you can pretty much always find the chance to ask your questions somehow or another. And it's really very, very helpful to have that relationship but it's also always said that you know I've said I think a good guideline you don't need to have too many teachers that's not a good idea and um, you know check them out check a teacher out don't just don't be misled by a charismatic teacher this is something even the Dalai Lama says don't be misled by a charismatic teacher check the teacher out Check out their conduct. Don't, uh, you know. And people are always worried with the Vajrayana guru that they're going to do something like tell you to sell all your belongings and move to the monastery or something like that. No decent guru will tell you that. You need to be careful what you ask a guru. If you ask the guru, should I sell everything and ordain? They might say yes. 
Well, don't ask that question unless you're sure you want to do it. Don't put, you know, you have to be responsible for your own life in the long run. You can't expect the guru to be, you know, responsible for whether you should get married or whether you should get divorced. Or I just think that, you know, people expect gurus to babysit them in ways that are totally unrealistic. One of the, um, a question that I have, and it's not just about gurus, but it's about all Dharma teachers, there's a lot of magical thinking or a lot of assumptions that teachers, and I think this is perhaps true in uh, Vajrayana, that the guru has some ability to do mind reading, uh, can you know, tell where your mind is, to, that you are... They have CDs, they have powers that, um, Well, to you know. some extent, some of them are halfway decent mind readers. But, you know, ordinary people are too. That's not such an extraordinary thing. Do, do they have special higher spiritual powers that um, us lowly beings need in order to become enlightened? I mean, is that part of the Vajrayana belief? No, it's your own... Pra- it's, it's, it's what all they have that we don't have is uh, the practices and the advice on how to how to work do it ourselves would no. other would other Vajrayana practitioners agree with you yes. about that oh yeah yeah there, it's not about but we make fun about the notion you can be zapped into enlightenment by a guru that's gossip that doesn't work I have a real simple question I'm just just this idea of visualization, I think mm-hmm. it does, in the Theravada tradition, at least the way we're being taught, we do have feeling states where we visualize compassion, loving kindness. I think the parmis come up during, those, during that introspection. So I've gotten a very interesting states of mind that I've discovered myself while in those moments. But I just have two quick questions. You spoke of imparment. I just want to know what that exactly mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. And number two, you talked about a practice table. Can you just talk to us a bit about that? Um, empowerment, another term for that is initiation. And that's uh, going through an initiation. The guru confers the initiation. And after you've been initiated, um, you are given the text. Like this is a very short sadhana text here. You're given the text of your liturgy and taught how to do the liturgy correctly. And then you do your do the practice yourself. You do the visualizations, you do the mantra recitations. I'll talk about all of that. So that's empowerment or initiation. You just mentioned sadhana too. I yeah, sadhana it means uh, liturgy or service okay. or puja is another word for it. Um, it's the liturgy that you read from as you're doing your practice. And a practice table, um, because we've got implements, we've got implements and we have a drum that we play, uh, we've got a lot of stuff that we work with. So we have it on a table in front of us. We sit on our cushions. I've seen that stuff. I get very confused. <laughs> yeah, you, you, we're sitting on a cushion with a table in front of us. And you have the text down on the table. Uh, I didn't bring my Vajrayana implements with me because I didn't want to weird people out. But, you know, I have a, I have a bell, and I have a dorje that I hold in my right hand, and I do mudras. I'll demonstrate some mudras later. I have a hand drum that I play. Those are the main implements that I use. And those are used all the time. They're not used in nundro. They're used once you do real Vajrayana practice. 
And uh, the, the bell symbolizes female wisdom, or wisdom which is feminine, rather. And the, uh, this thing in the right hand symbolizes compassion, which is masculine and also skillful means. And you are constantly working to develop wisdom and compassion and to bring them together. This is the, this is the mudra of bringing wisdom and compassion together perfectly. And it doesn't take very long to learn how to use those implements. But they're, you know, I don't, I don't use them much anymore because I'm moving, uh, and I'm not sure I'm doing this. I think my teacher knows I'm doing this. I'm moving more and more towards more and more simple open practice and less and less liturgy and less and less visualization. So, okay. Oh, there's a hand over here. Um, and maybe you're going to get into this when you talk about visualization, but uh, the uh, the forms have so much visualization, and they they attract the mind so much, and you leap onto so many ideas, and so much of it is about our own beautiful nature and capacity. But I've heard some people say that, you know, why are you filling your mind with so much when we want to get to an empty state? Mm-hmm. And the way I had it explained to me, and maybe maybe you have um, uh, uh, can say something about this, but that when you're finished with that sadhana, coming toward the end and everything dissolves. Yeah, right. Well, that's, the, the, okay. that's the whole day's teaching, so... So the, the mind, the alternation between the creation stage and the completion stage. So first we have to get through creation stage. First we have to get initiated. We have to get. We have finished our nundro. We're getting initiated. Okay. When you're initiated, you're mainly initiated to do creation practices with a little bit of fulfillment practice thrown in there. And that's the alternation between visualizing something and at the end of the practice session, I guess I can say this now, I was going to say it later, but since you've brought it up, we'll say it now. At the end of the practice session, when you're done with all the forms, all the, all the little ritual gestures you do, all the liturgy you've been saying, the mantra you've been repeating, the visualization that's been in your mind, when you're done, when you've you said, okay, that's, that's enough, then everything is dissolved into emptiness. The whole visualization dissolves into emptiness because the state of emptiness is obviously uh, much much truer, I guess is the word I would use, much truer than the state of form. But also, why do you do all the visualizations? First of all, it's mind training. It's mind training. Most people, um, you know, having a real grasp of emptiness takes a very long time. And one of the warnings in the teacher's world that I live in is don't, you, if you should, unless you really understand emptiness, you shouldn't even try to teach it. So um, the, the creation stage... Let me go into talking about the creation stage because there's limits to how much you can do without getting a thorough grasp of the, the creation stage. So we've done, our, we've finished our nundro. 
we are eligible for initiation. We go through the initiation. So after completing the preliminaries by numbers, one is initiated and can become full can begin full Vajrayana practice. Initiation is required. That's the point where I was before. That even though you can go get books out of the library that have all the directions in them and you could do you could presumably do it. You probably but chances that you'd be doing it right are be about as good as my chances of actually learning how to do WordPerfect without any teaching. Uh, it's just considered that you know. And besides, why why not why not get some advice and some hints from people who are more experienced at this than you are? Why try to invent the wheel yourself? Are you that smart? that you can invent the wheel by yourself. What's wrong with having a teacher? I run into that a lot. If everything is inside me anyway, well, I'm just going to dig it out myself. I don't want to work with a teacher. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to. That's stupid. That's stupid to say I don't want to work with a teacher. There's so many people who know so much, and just because they say something doesn't mean you have to jump you know, jump in full force with what they said. Maybe they, maybe they have good advice. Maybe they don't. But why? Why not listen to teachers? Kanda Rinpoche says we should all listen to as many teachings as we can from all different teachers because you never know what teaching is going to just really click. So why not give yourself the advantage of working with as many teachers teachers as you can? So we are initiated now. I'm going to use a technical phrase. We have been initiated into the guru's world. We have been initiated to start to see reality the way the guru sees reality, which is much more correct, much more correctly. To see the world the way Jetsunma sees it. Jetsuma would never call herself a guru. She is and not. She won't even. She doesn't call herself a teacher. She's anyway. not even a teacher. So, anyway, can, can I ask a question about this? About the initiation. Mm-hmm. So, initiation is is that the lung? Is that the the lung? The, the initiation consists of the long, the lung, and the tree. The long is the actual ceremony. Mm-hmm where we get empowerment from. The lung is the reading transmission. Because until a text is read to you, you haven't really received it. Checking a book out of the library isn't enough to have received the text. And then the tree is the explanation on how to do the practice. So in the Wong, if you receive the Wong in Tibetan, but you don't understand Tibetan, are you considered to have received the empowerment? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And why is that? For Tibetans, Tibetan is all powerful. Okay, okay. (laughs) I know. And I think one of the things that that you said that I think is very helpful, and it is something that Jetsuma has said repeatedly about Vajrayana, and again, she does not consider herself a teacher, is that Vajrayana is a set, I think, for people to understand this, because it really helped me as a Theravada practitioner, Vajrayana is not a philosophy, it's a set of techniques. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Thank you for, yeah, I mean, I guess I've been saying that in one way or another, but to say it explicitly is very, very helpful. Vajrayana 
is a set of practices to attain enlightenment and to speed up the path to attain enlightenment in a single lifetime. It is not another philosophy. Insofar as it is philosophical, it is based on, especially based on Buddha nature teachings. Because this is, okay, now you've been initiated. You now live in a universe of enlightened beings. You have been introduced to them. You have been introduced to a whole bunch of enlightened beings at your initiation, and one of them is told, that's who you really are. So start visualizing yourself as that enlightened being. That's what Vajrayana Utpati creation stage practice is. It's visualizing oneself as who one really is, which is an enlightened being. We still might have a few wrinkles and bumps and, you know, pockmarks and things we're confused about, but that intrinsic nature we talked about early on, you know, of not seeing their own intrinsic awareness. Now we're moving into really becoming more and more immersed in, more and more able to see our intrinsic being, our intrinsic nature as enlightened. So, you know, this is like Zen uh, well, two, one is already enlightened. Um, so one has been introduced in the initiation to a lot of enlightened beings and has one of them in particular, usually one of them has been said, this is the one you will work with as what you, would, what you will look like when you're fully enlightened. That's one of the ways I put it what you will look like when you're fully enlightened. So visualize that. Visualize that. Uh, What I have in my notes here is that this is the fast path of Vajrayana practice. The fast path is to shed one's false identity as a samsaric being by creating oneself as an enlightened being since one already is but has forgotten that. And um, I, I have taught once, I was, Rinpoche gave me permission, and I once taught this little text that I have here as a transmission. I'm not teaching it to you as a transmission, but I did to a small group of students. And I, you know, I went to her afterwards and I said, my understanding of all of this is that it's overcoming mistaken identity, overcoming a serious case of mistaken identity. And she said, yes, that's right. Now, I think that Buddhism altogether and all of Indian religion is overcoming a serious case of mistaken identity. We insist on being these diminished, impoverished beings, and we're not. We can be much more than that. And so this is one skillful means to wake up to who we really are. Uh, this is very common Buddhist advice. I will cite, for example, in the, if you take an init- a beginning sitting instruction in the Zen tradition, they will often tell you, Zen Buddhists, as you know, make a huge deal of correct posture, a really big deal of correct posture. And, you know, if you look at Buddhist iconography, Buddhas don't sit any old way. Buddhas sit in a very precise way. 
They have what we call good head and shoulders. They have their head right on their neck. They're, they're not just slouching. They're not sitting in a sloppy way. And the Zen Buddhists say, if you want to be Buddha, behave like a Buddha. Sit like a Buddha. When you sit like a Buddha, at that moment you are Buddha. Period. And that's why in Soto Zen, for example, there is no discipline except sitting like a Buddha. Endlessly sitting like a Buddha. That's the discipline. Uh, Soto Zen does not use koans. That's a different form of Zen. So if you want to become Buddha, sit like a Buddha. This is if you want to become an enlightened being, visualize yourself as this particular enlightened being. So Utpati, we are now up to Utpati. Uh, Overcome mistaken identity by visualizing oneself as a fully enlightened being. And the technical term for that in Tibetan is as a yidam. If you've heard that word, Y-I-D-A-M. Often translated as deity. It doesn't mean a deity as a transcendent creator god at all. And in fact, the deity is not even fundamentally uh, separate and independent. So one visualizes oneself as a yidam. And I want to give a little background here, because visualization can seem like a strange practice, but pretty basic to Buddhism is the understanding that our sense, what we see in our sense perceptions are not objectively given. They are not, what we see when we perceive things with our senses are not objectively there. We see what our minds perceives. And, you know, that's a fairly complicated thought to follow through, but it's a pretty basic Buddhist thought that um, we see what our perceptions are here, what our perceptions relate to us, and what our mind picks up from the sense organ. But, you know, our experience is the result of the interaction between sense organ and sense object. And those are dependent on each other. Those are interdependent. And both of them are empty of inherent existence or existing independently or by themselves. And, you know, one of the ways we can demonstrate this, I think, would be with some cross-cultural perception exercises where depending on how our sense organs, depending on how we've been trained culturally, what our mind interprets that we're seeing can differ from culture to culture. And that's how people develop notions of beautiful and ugly. That's how people turn into racists. None of that is objectively given. It's all mind created. So the notion that, that we need to distinguish between reality and mind's creation is very, very important in Buddhism. Um, somewhat similar to the distinction between reality and appearance. Yes? Just a short question. Um, the yidam that you use, 
Is that selected by your guru, or do you choose? No, it's it's uh, it, different lineages. Different teaching lineages have different sequences of practices that you're given. And, you know, the romantic notion is that the guru has a cup of tea with you and looks deeply into your eyes and says, oh, I think you should do X. That doesn't happen. At least I've never seen it to happen. But if you train in a certain lineage, usually the first yidam you will practice with is X yidam. And then later on you might practice with Y yidam. So it's to develop specific qualities yeah, or specific characterizations. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's, it's mind training. It's mind training. It's to develop... I mean, among other things, uh, visualization is a shamatha practice. People don't understand that, but it's a shamatha practice. You are developing the ability to visualize something and hold the mind there in a stable way. And... Um, I don't consider myself to be a particularly good visualizer. I, I, um, visualization, you're not seeing, when you visualize, you're not seeing what you would see with your eyeballs. It's not the eyeballs that are seeing a visualization. It's not the sense organ, <coughs> in other words, that sees a visualization. It's the mind consciousness. So you create it with your mind consciousness. So it's mind training. It's it's just like remembering to follow the breath. And uh, you know, many people complain, and I've complained. I used to complain about this a lot myself. That it, the vis- visualization wasn't vivid, and it wasn't uh, clear. Because a lot of the texts talk about visualization being clear and vivid. Um, I don't consider myself to be a very good visualizer. Mine never are. But that really doesn't matter. In the long run, the important thing is you need to memorize the visualization. So you need to know where different stuff is on the visualization. So, you know, is the right leg raised or the left leg raised? Uh, is, the, is, the, is, the, uh, is the skull cup in the right hand or the left hand? The hook knife would be in the left hand, the skull cup would... I mean, the hook knife would be in the right hand, the skull cup would be in the left hand. You'd need to memorize those things. Ah, you know, what are the ornaments? So deities come in many, many appearances. This is something that, you know, is confusing to outsiders about Vajrayana Buddhism. They say it's so complicated. There are so many different yidams, uh, endless numbers of yidams. Nobody could ever know them all, period. You, you could have this huge art book and everyone would be different and you still wouldn't. I mean, they just seem to have yidam factories somewhere in Tibet and they just keep churning them out. But they can come in male or female form. Uh, there's once, in Buddhism, once we started to get anthropomorphic imagery of enlightenment, as soon as we started to have anthropomorphic images of enlightened mind, they started to appear both in female and male forms. And I think that's very, very important and is a very severe curb on Buddhist patriarchy because the female yidams are just as powerful and just as important and the female bodhisattvas are just as powerful and just as important as the male bodhisattvas. It's not at all like monotheism where God and Jesus are all male and everything important is male. That's not the way it is in Mahayana Vajrayana Buddhism. 
So beatums can come in male and female form. They can also be visualized in sexual union, which is very, very common. So sexuality is symbolized, uh, is used as a symbol in Vajrayana Buddhism. I already said compassion. Compassion is male. Uh, wisdom is feminine. And they merge. And um, so, you know, most of the time when you're first learning to visualize, you're not given a, a yabium. You're not given a couple to visualize. That takes a little more training. Uh, but they come male, they come female, they come sexual union. They also come peaceful and wrathful. Um, some of them are really, um, you know, they're really scary looking. And some of them are smiling and peaceful and that's just the way they come. Because those are all things that human beings experience and which we have to not reject but transmute. Because nothing is rejected in Vajrayana Buddhism. Nothing is rejected. Everything is made use of in one way or another. Everything is transmuted into its enlightened quality. Everything has an inherent potential to be enlightened. And that's why nothing is rejected. And everything is worked with. Everything is uh, transmuted. So in visualization, um, what we're doing, among other things, is instead of having allegiance to the world of appearance, to the world we think we see with our sense organs, we're having allegiance to what is called sacred world or sacred outlook, which is the world in which everything is perfect as it is and everything is inherently enlightened. And we're just training ourselves to see the world as perfect as it is. Why is the world perfect as it is? Because of interdependence, because of karma. It couldn't be any different than it is because the causes and conditions have all been laid down. They can only come to fruition as they do. So it doesn't mean it's like what you like. That's not what we mean when we say the world is perfect as it is. We don't mean the world is the way you like it or that there's no oppression in the world. What we mean is that karma works infallibly. Karma works without, uh, you know, without any anything. So we're not quite done with uh, Utpati practice yet. I'll finish that up after lunch. It's now 11.50, so I'll take a few questions or comments, and we'll break for lunch. I'm glad to see that in the long run here, we've ended up with at least a halfway decent crowd. I think I think the thing about the visualization was, you know, you can ask, why, why am I making my mind so so busy? And to come to not making it busy, it's because the mind is naturally that busy. <laughs> so why busy. fight it? Yeah, the mind is busy. Make it, make it fuller and well, fuller. Well, also, when you're doing a visualization, the mind isn't especially busy. Because very few visual, the only visualization that moves is emanating and gathering, which I'll talk about later. But, you know, the mind, it's, you know, it's not like a movie. It's more like, you know, like all the Tibetan art is an aid for visualization practice. So, you know, I'm not a good visualizer. I have my pictures there so I can look at the pictures while I'm visualizing. But my mind isn't 
busy. My mind is simply filled with the visualization. There's difference. A busy mind is thinking about this and this and this and this and that. And is this the case? And is that the case? And is it up? Is it down? Visualization isn't busy like that. Visualization is not discursive. It's just uh, the mind is full of the visualization, but it's not discursive at all because there's not much going on. The only thing that might be going on is emanating and gathering, and I don't want to talk about that till after we come back from lunch. I just wanted to ask about um, almost 25 years ago now, there was a wonderful Tibetan um, exhibition of Tibetan art in San Francisco called Wisdom and Compassion mm-hmm. um, that Richard Gere and Bob mm-hmm. Thurman and all put together. Mm-hmm. And um, I was... It was so, I, and I have actually the catalog from it. Yeah, I but think those I have. Images, I, think, I think I have it too. And I was just wondering, of course, now they're all dispersed all around the world. I mean, the actual art objects. But I was wondering how they're used. I mean, is that something that, um, I'm certain that they were, they're part of the um, practice. Yeah, well, as I images. said, the, the, the tankas and the rupas, the, the paintings and the statues, they're not merely artwork. They're all aids for visualization. So that they're visual cues. So does that mean that one actually tries to... Um, but you look at them at some point. They're coming in through your eye. Well, if you're not... As I said, I'm not a good visualizer. When I close my eyes and try to visualize, I know where things are and should be, but I don't see much of anything. I cannot make a mind-created vivid visualization. But if I want to have a more vivid sense of what am I trying to visualize, I just open my eyes and look at the picture. And that's very, very common. That's not, you know, that's not unusual. So the statues and the paintings are all aids to visualization. Mm -hmm. And so a monastery will have, um, you know, lots of them all around some monasteries. Some monasteries, all the walls are painted, every square inch is mm-hmm. painted with figures that uh, all they tell stories. They're very elaborate. There's not an empty square inch. They all tell stories. There are paintings hung. There are statues there. It's a very, um, you know, it's a very full world. It's not, Zen style is completely different. It's not that way at all. It's a very full, vibrant, rich world. Yes. In the Theravada tradition, there's a big emphasis on not doing harm. So in a teaching where nothing is rejected, could you explain a little bit about the role of the precepts? Well, monastic people, of course, um, observe monastic precepts and many lay people observe some or all of the lay precepts of course non-harming is always a basic Buddhist ethic period what is not rejected is aggression because aggression is everyone has tendencies towards aggression I'll talk about this more this afternoon so aggressive thoughts rather than saying I can't I shouldn't think that that's a bad thought. I should, my mind is gone there. That's terrible. Oh, bad me. When, when those kinds of thoughts arise, because they do arise, one is taught to acknowledge this thought is here now and look directly in it, and it will dissolve. 
It is trying to reject it that gives its wings. So that's what I mean, among other things, when I say everything, nothing is rejected. I don't mean that, well, if you feel like killing someone, just go do it. No, I, that's not what I mean. If you feel like killing someone, look directly into that thought. Fiercely. And you know, thoughts have a way, when you try to hold on to them, they have a way of dissolving. We do want to break for lunch soon. Um, I'm not hugely familiar with Theravada Buddhism either. I'm kind of recent to practicing that. So, um, but I, it seems like in um, both forms of Buddhism, you um, rituals are considered hindrances. And based on what I'm hearing today, it seems like a lot of what you're describing could be used as rituals. No, rituals, Vajrayana Buddhism is very ritualistic. There's a lot of rituals in Vajrayana Buddhism. Ritual can be skillful means. Ritual can be, it's a, especially when done in a group practice, it's, it's just, it's impossible to explain what it's like to be with a group of people who all know how to do the ritual correctly, doing it simultaneously, chanting together, uh, it's it's very uh, it's very very powerful and very transformative, you know, and puts you in a state of mind where things become very very clear. Ritual people, you know, in the modern world, people are anti-ritual. Ritual, if you cling to it or if you think it's magical and all you have to do is do the ritual correctly and everything will be fine, that's a problem. But ritual. Ritual done correctly can be extremely powerful and transformative and helpful. And we all use rituals all the time. I mean, we we eat a certain way with knives and forks. That's a ritual. Metta is a form of ritual. Hmm? Metta is a form of ritual. Metta practice. practice. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, in the monastery. Yeah, I mean, in the monasteries, I'm sure there's plenty of ritual and plenty of chanting. Um, and you know, and in Zen, the, the, the gossip about Zen is that there's no ritual. That's not true. That's not true at all. You've got to bow just so, and you've got to bow to your cushion, and you've got to turn. You know, I mean. Don't bow to your cushion. Let's get that straight. <laughs> Anyway, can we break for lunch? It's 11.58. So, what, so we should be back here at... 1.30. Oh, 1.30, sorry. <laughs> I'm the group that wants to get the...